Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here. You're with Talk on TV, we're on radio, we're online and we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, the dirt has well and truly been dished to the COVID inquiry. We'll bring you the biggest bombshells. King Charles is in Kenya where he's expressed regret for our colonial past and owning an XL bully will be banned from next year under the Dangerous Dogs Act. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. This is the one place where you get the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth and we'll bring you lots of it over the next three hours, of course. Right now we're going to continue uh, with our dive into what's going on in the papers uh, this morning with Kevin O'Sullivan. Uh, Kevin, welcome back and thank you for staying uh, for the next uh, little little bit. But before we go on, we've got a couple of big showbiz stories to talk about. But before we go on, uh, something has come to my attention oh, from last is. night. Uh, it was Halloween here at Talk TV. Halloween up on the 17th floor. Uh, Halloween at Virgin Radio. They had a very special occasion and they decided to invite orchestral oh, no. manoeuvres in the dark. Ah. And here's another picture of Kevin dancing. He's doing the same dance he did the last time. I've got one in my repertoire. It's very good, that. But the thing is, nobody else around you is doing any dancing at all. What's yeah. going on with that? Uh, well, there, there's someone dancing. There's Holly. Oh, yeah. There's Holly, our oh, producer. Yeah. That was the last time anybody saw it. No, no one's seen her since. No. Uh, uh, what did that you do with that? Yeah. <laughs> that was Kestrel anyway, Manoeuvres in the Dark, me dancing. Kestrel Manoeuvres in the Dark on Halloween. Well done, Kevin <laughs> Sullivan. Keeping it real. Still got uh, it. <laughs> now, let's go back to the world of showbiz. Uh, we've got Robert De Niro in court. This is an extraordinary, extraordinary story. story. Amazing. This is his former personal assistant who was promoted up to be vice president uh, president of productions at yes. the film company, uh, Canal Productions. Mm. Uh, she worked for him for about, I think it was about 10, 12 years. Yeah, she's a long su- time, right? She's suing him for uh, uh, making her life a nightmare. Yes. Uh, he was the boss from hell. And uh, although she was an important executive, he got he, she accuses him of scratch, asking her to scratch his back, getting her to do meaning. Oh, actually scratching his back, yeah, yeah. just a manner of speaking. Yeah, no, right? no, no. And he, he's admitted he did do that a couple right. of times. Anyway, in the middle of this, so uh, that he was abusive, he shouted at her, he demeaned her, da-da-da-da. Uh, now, uh, as he defends himself in a, a Manhattan court, mm. in the middle of her testimony, he, Robert De Niro, you know, this venerable actor, he's 80 years old, yeah. he just stands up and screams, shame on you, shame on you, <laughs> and starts screaming at her, which, uh, you know, I'm not a legal expert, but I would say it doesn't look good no, for him in this I mean, case. It's not, the great, it. it's not the greatest way to prove to a judge that you're not a bully, really, is it, by shouting at the person who's actually suing you. Yeah, and he it's also... an extraordinary thing he, he to do. He also said, because, uh, uh, you know, he was challenged about the way... Um, he runs his. He ran his office. I mean, he apparently did run it with a rod of iron. Yeah. And he sort of said, like in a really pompous way, you know, in my office, no one. I tell you, no one tells me what to do. Yeah. So he's emerging from this uh, as a, uh, allegedly not. Wait for this. 
Not a good fella. Uh, very good. Ah, I see that's why I get there. the big bucks. Uh, this is why, absolutely right. Now, see how many other Dero referenced films you can get in from now till the end of this report. But because you remember when um, he banned Donald Trump from his restaurant, uh, from, from Nobu, which is, of course, he's got the Tribeca Grill, which yeah, we were talking yeah, about earlier yesterday, nice. but the Nobu sort of uh, chain that he's got all over the country uh, in America, both, both there yeah. and here as well. Um, and Trump said, yeah, that's okay because most of my um, voters can't actually afford to pay $265 for a steak. Yeah. So, you know, it's not a problem for you well, banning me. And don't forget, he also uh, threatened to punch uh, Donald Trump. Mm. He didn't like him that much. Yeah. Trump said, well, you could always try. But isn't it funny how, <laughs> you know, in days gone by, in days when you and I used to cover, you know, showbiz stories in America, this wouldn't have ever come to court, a case like this, because this is how you expect superstars to behave. You yeah, I guess so. To be absolute divas. So. Now, this is a woman who was on 300000 a year, um, and apparently she is now able to sue him uh, for treating her so terribly badly. Well, yeah, I mean, but uh, I mean, from the evidence we've heard so far, I mustn't uh, come down either side, of course, and we don't know what the, you know, what his story will be. Uh, her name, by the way, typical American name. This is a woman. Her name is Graham Chase Robinson. Of course, you've got to have more That's than two names. That's not a woman's names. name. You've got to have more uh, than two but names. But one of the things you mentioned, Nobu. One of the things she says he got him to do. He, he, she says That's that he her regularly. Now. Yeah. She, they, they, he regularly phoned her at like four in the morning. Mm. and th He phoned her once, uh, apparently about midnight or something, and said, could it, she organise a uh, vodka martini mm. to be brought from Nobu to his apartment? You know. That's mad. I mean, that is a bit like, that is a if bit that's deeper, true, like, that is Hollywood special. That is ridiculous. And also he uh, apparently called her an effing spoiled brat yeah. um, in a fiery message that he left uh, for her on her answering machine. Um, the other thing that I find quite weird is all the pictures uh, that we see of Robert De Niro, maybe it's because he's uh, uh, an old man now, he's wearing a mask. Well, you know, I think it's maybe it's because he's 80, but I noticed the other day after the sad death of Matt Perry, yeah. David Schwimmer, his former mm. co-star, was photoed in New York, he was of, wearing yeah. a mask. Uh, I think, to be fair, I, I don't think they're necessarily uh, COVID-phobic people. Yeah. Uh, it's a good way of not being recognised if well, you're very famous. Well, it is. there was a time when you wore a mask in order to go into the bank and rob it. You know, now they yeah, tell do you, you now? To, now they tell you to wear a mask, otherwise you can't get in. Yeah, you Unbelievable. Burst in the bank wearing a mask. Yeah. Everybody says good morning. <laughs> yes. Front page of the Sun this morning. Uh, we've got Robbie Williams uh, talking about the menopause. He says, "I've got the menopause, age 49. I've got a low sex drive. I can't sleep." Uh, basically, and he says uh, um, he's knackered all the time. Yeah, he takes testosterone injections. Does he to make him? Uh, feel a bit more peppy. Yeah. Uh, but he says he needs a neck lift, he needs to get his teeth done, uh, and, uh, you know, he needs uh, to uh, get these injections. I'll tell you what you need, Robbie. You need to be a little less self-obsessed. Yes. Well, do you know what some people say about Robbie Williams? He's never been the same since um, um, Jimmy Page cast that spell on him. Do you remember... Um, do you remember yeah, well, that was the, the neighbourly row. Yeah, the yeah. big neighbours feud about... Um, you know, I think I think Robbie Williams was trying to build a swimming pool into his basement or something yeah. like that. And Jimmy Page was his next door neighbour in Holland Park, yeah. uh, who's thought to be a man uh, who is, shall we say, cognizant of the dark arts. Yeah, well, I mean, the joke he cast was a spell that, you know, on him. that he was going to cast a spell on yeah, him. Yeah, they, they're big, but they both had literally twenty million pound mansions next to yes. each other, and uh, Robbie's improvements 
to his mansion were not approved of right. by uh, uh, Jimmy Page yeah. next door. And one of the things that I found hilarious was that they would play pranks on each other. And Jimmy Page once hired a, a firm called Millennium Scaffolding to just park their lorry outside his house uh, for about a week <laughs> and didn't move it just for the hell of it. But there we are. Now, here's a weird one. This happened yesterday, and we've got another report now twice. from Birmingham uh, of the mice being let loose inside a McDonald's yeah. um, in a particular part of Birmingham. Yeah, they're dyed. They're dyed to the colour of yeah. the... Uh, Palestinian flag, so it's a sort of some kind of pro-Palestine stunt. But I think you know, like for all the horrors that are going on, well, I mean, let, let's screen. not add animal cruelty to the list. There, this is really cruel. It's very do. odd behaviour, isn't it? But also, it's wrong and awful and cruel. Yeah. Leave those poor little mice alone. And what is don't their beef? Die animals. It's what not is their fair. beef exactly? If you don't mind me. Well, saying it's so. it's a pro-Palestine thing. Yeah, no, but why, what are they saying that McDonald's has got a connection to Israel? Well, I don't think they necessarily have. I mm. don't think. Um, but it's like um, somebody said, likened, you know, queers for Palestine. Yeah. You know, oh, we support Palestine. Whereas if they went to Palestine, this is mice for Palestine. They'd, be, they'd be chucked off the top of a uh, car park or something. Yeah. Uh, somebody likened uh, queers for Palestine to a group called uh, Cows for McDonald's. Oh, uh, yes, you mentioned that. Yeah, well, all <laughs> mice for McDonald's, which is now yeah, the Yeah, well, thing. they stop doing this. Get a, if you must protest, don't involve innocent animals. Yes. Don't die, these mice. You awful people. Yeah, I know. Pretty Leave dreadful stuff. Uh, let's go to Princess Diana. The Crown apparently is going oh, to portray yeah. Princess Diana as pregnant. She's not coming right? out of this soon now, as well. She's, I mean, we always knew it was going to end badly, this whole show, right? They've now decided to reinvent the wheel and reinvent history and make up stuff which didn't happen, including the fact that she's going to come back as a ghost um, and the fact that she may, uh, according to Muhammad Al-Fayed, have been killed as part of an establishment plot. I mean, they've totally lost the plot. Yeah, and also, also uh, more to the point, the, the this series will uh, reveal uh, definitively, I mean, it, when I say reveal, it will allege definitively that Princess Diana, when she died, was pregnant, yes. which I don't believe is true. No, but it's, I think that, that's again, been it's proved. one of those stories that's been doing the rounds and people who uh, are willing to believe this kind of rubbish. <laughs> what will now happen, of course, is half the American audience will think this is all something... Oh, well, they happened. think it's a documentary. Yeah. Uh, but this series, uh, I think, has been unwatchable since about episode two of series Yeah, two. well, luckily, I can claim to have never seen any of it. Well, so I watched a bit. The, the first series was quite good when it was historical. Yeah. Going way back to when, you know, the Queen was a young wife, yeah, and when military she wife, and it was interesting. Queen, yeah. But ever since then, it's been jumping the shark, as they yeah. say in television. Uh, yeah, Diana's also coming back as a ghost. The Queen's coming back as a ghost, uh, where she's going to take a keen interest in her own funeral right. arrangements. This is just pathetic. Cobblers, isn't it? It's just what are they going to do next? Are they going to the, the next series? They'll be looking into the future. You know, the royal family, yeah, twenty third <laughs> century, yeah. what they're doing now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they might as well. What a load of old rubbish. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots more to come. And of course, we know uh, that you want to have your say as well. So do make that call 0344 499 1000. Sakir Starmer is denying that the conflict in the Middle East is causing a chasm in the Labour Party after he defended his decision not to back a ceasefire in Gaza. That was yesterday. Uh, after he made that speech at Chatham House, he was mobbed, as you can see, as he came out uh, by a lot of protesters who were shouting, war criminal. Uh, there is obviously a problem inside the Labour Party. Some people want to see um, a stronger stance being taken by, by Starmer. But I thought, as I said yesterday, uh, that he probably said the right thing. I'm joined now by former senior advisor to Labour, uh, Mr James Robinson. James, very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Morning. Um, I thought Starmer um, had a pretty... 
good day yesterday, by and large. I mean, he basically had an opportunity uh, to either move to the left of the party uh, or to sort of stand firm and basically say, no, I'm not going to bow to this pressure. I don't care whether Sadiq Khan said it. Don't care whether Andy Burnham said it. Don't care whether Anna Sawa said it up in Scotland. I'm going to still say uh, that we don't need a ceasefire at this time. Let's have a look. While I understand calls for a ceasefire at this stage, I do not believe that it is the correct position now for two reasons. One, because a ceasefire always freezes any conflict in the state where it currently lies. And as we speak, that would leave Hamas with the infrastructure and the capability to carry out the sort of attack we saw on October the 7th. My second reason, which is that our current calls for pauses in the fighting for clear and specific humanitarian purposes, and which must start immediately, is right in practice as well as principle. Stephen Pollard from the Jewish Chronicle, um, James, said, I think, last week in the Mail, you know, this will be a real test of what kind of leader Keir Starmer is going to be. Um, and I think he's got the right, um, the right idea here, hasn't he? Oh, no, I totally agree. Mm. I mean, I think he set out his position clearly, very articulately, in a very thoughtful speech. Maybe it could have been made earlier, maybe it could have been made a that week is ago. A, that is an issue that people say all the time, isn't it? That you could have yeah. said this a week ago, or you could have done that a week ago. You know, he took a week to explain what he said uh, to Nick Ferrari. You know, there's always a kind of a lull, isn't there, in his reactions? Yeah, but it's better to get it right than to be quick sometimes. And mm. I think his position is, uh, as I say, very well articulated and explained and is the right one, yeah. I happen to think, as you do. Um, so it is, I, I think, Pollard was right, and other commentators have been right, that this is a big... It is a, a test of his leadership. Mm. It's the biggest test of his leadership, I think, yeah. yet. Right. Um, but I think he's passing it, and I think... Uh, and the question remains, I suppose, is that will that do anything to placate the side of the Labour Party that doesn't agree with him, uh, or will they just get more and more noisy? Because, I mean, I haven't really seen... I've, I've seen some tweets from Sadiq Khan and from other, uh, you know, sort of left-leaning pro-Palestinian Labour MPs who have been trying to sort of say that they also feel very sorry for things that are happening to the Jewish uh, communities around the world as well. Um, but it's still difficult to tell whether this rift is, is going to get bigger or get smaller. Well, I think... I don't want to sound like a politician myself, but I think, I think, the, uh, I think a lot of the people, the critics of the policy in the party and the shadow front bench uh, and elsewhere will, will have heard what Keir said and will mm. reflect on what is sensible for them to say at this time. Right. Because uh, there, are, there is a difference of opinion. Mm. There is a difference of opinion. There's no point disguising that. But if you're part of a, a political party, you are obliged to take the, uh, the, the lead from... The, in this case, Keir Starmer. Yeah. That, that is the Labour Party policy. Yeah. So I think this is a good, a big moment for Keir yesterday, and I think, I think that it will help uh, heal some of the wounds and uh, uh, going forward. Mm. I can only hope that's. I the mean, case. there are many, of course, in the Labour Party who worry not just about differences of opinion, though, but actually differences of opinion which could lead uh, to a lack of votes particularly from some in the Muslim community, because we're told that they've got something like 5 million votes uh, in the Muslim community in this country, 70% of whom vote for the Labour Party. If they decide they're not going to do that, yeah. that's a problem for them. It is, but look, well, there's two points there. First of all, to talk about the politics of it, which might sound a bit uh, insensitive, most of those seats are solidly Labour. Yeah. It would take a big, 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 big swing 
for the Labour to lose those seats where yeah. there are those. Because they're mostly inner city seats. Yeah, I mean, they're big, they're big, they're 20,000. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can't take them for granted, but they're 20,000 majorities, mm. 20 or 30,000 majorities. There are some marginal seats, I think Peterborough's one, where that isn't the case. So it would be wrong to claim that it'll have no impact. Yeah. It could. Uh, elections a year away. We don't know what the situation will be in the Middle East come then. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, of course it's a factor. Um, but I think it's very important for the Labour Party to say that this is a a terrorist attack. There's 200 hostages there still, including well, foreign nationals. And for all they need people, to acknowledge that yeah, I mean, before for, they talk about the Palestinian cause. And also before they start talking about ceasefires, you know, you can't yeah. have a ceasefire with an organisation uh, which is vowing not only to wipe you off the map, Correct. but is also holding 200 of your citizens against their own will, having taken them from their own country. That, that's why you can't have a ceasefire, as yeah. Keir Starmer said. That locks in their advantage and allows them to prepare future attacks. This, you know, a ceasefire with a terrorist organisation is very different from a ceasefire, ceasefire between two mm. states. And as you say, Hamas want to impose a caliphate on the Middle East. They want to impose Sharia law. Yeah. I don't believe most people in the Middle East want Sharia law. No. I don't believe they want well, Israel to be wiped off the face of you the can, earth. You can see, despite the fact that there may be other countries like Iran who would have that sort of policy and yeah. possibly Lebanon with Hezbollah, but certainly when you look at Egypt and you look at um, Jordan, both countries which are neighbouring to Palestine, yeah. uh, both of whom have said, we don't want to take any Palestinian refugees because we don't want to bring uh, Hamas into our that's country, right. effectively. Well, that's the Middle East situation, isn't it? And that's why Hamas have launched this attack, I strongly yeah. suspect, because they know and they see that Israel has reached accommodations with many of these former enemies right. over the last decades. And they're doing that. They were making a lot of progress with the Saudis and mm. others on that. Right. That's why Hamas, I think, started this war. Yeah. Because they, they don't want to see reconciliation no. between Israel and its Arab no, neighbours. it doesn't suit them to have peace, does it? I mean, it suits them to be at war, and that's what they want. That's what that, they do. Yeah. And it also, when people talk of a ceasefire, it's almost as though there's only rockets going in one direction. It's yeah. not true. There are rockets going into Israel every single hour of every single day. Indeed. And, and I think, you know, this is about, or, you know, we're not a foreign affairs show, I don't think, but this is about geopolitics. Well, we, we do everything here. <laughs> yeah, we good. do absolutely everything. Well, it's about Iran. Yeah. I mean, Iran are the, the malign actor in the Middle East. Right. And they have been for many, many years, ever since 1979. And how so. does that change? Because, I mean, there are some who say that the only time Iran sort of was better behaved than this was when Donald Trump was president. Mm. You know, now there are, there are very different, different views on that. But basically, you know, he did appear to have them... Uh, sort of where he wanted them, if you like, and, and, and now they seem to be flexing their muscles a bit more uh, with, with Joe Biden in, in charge. Well, I'm not sure. I can't remember them being particularly well-behaved. I mean, I, I, they, they weren't... Well, they weren't they, they funding were, Hamas to go into Israel and advising them to do that's so. That's true. The, the Hamas's timing was all its own choosing, I think. Yeah. But, um, I, you know, I, I'm not sure Trump... I wouldn't not necessarily regard Trump as a... Well, he tore up the, the Barack Obama deal, didn't he? Which which, yeah. which was something that I think a lot of people thought was perhaps wrongly intended to do, and it didn't really work. Well, I mean, I'm personally quite pleased, and I think we all are, that Iran doesn't have nuclear weapons. Yes. I'd be very, yeah. very keen to see that that right. never happens. So if there's a deal that could be done with Iran, mm. talking about deals... Mm that ensures they never get their hands on nuclear weapons, I think that's one that should be pursued and not ruled out. Yes. I mean, that was the Obama deal you referred to, wasn't it? Yes. Um, which Trump didn't like. Right. Um, I don't know. It doesn't matter how you get there. Mm. All you need to ensure is that that, that, yeah. that those lunatics never get their hands on sure. nukes. Let's just get back close to home. When yeah. Keir Starmer came out of that speech, as I say yesterday, he was mobbed by protesters who mm. were calling him a war criminal and accusing him of siding with, uh, you know, the wrong side, Israel, effectively. But one thing that I was shocked by, and it was pointed out to me by somebody who, who follows uh, Keir Starmer and, and takes pictures of him and stuff like that, um, is that his, his security is quite low level, considering 
where he currently now is. Because if he would, was to become Prime Minister, obviously his security would go up immediately. But as leader of the opposition, he's got less security than Sadiq Khan, uh, who's the Mayor of London, who has two cars, one of which is bulletproof, one of which follows the first car, and he's got four detectives uh, security all the time. Kistan's only got two and one car. Yeah, I'm surprised to learn that. Yeah. That, that, seem, that clearly seems wrong. I mean, mm. Sadiq has a, a unique profile and a unique... Um, I know, you know, I know he's threatened regularly, as is his family. Mm. Um, but if Keir Starmer is the next Prime Minister, he may be, he may not, mm. he could be. Yeah. That needs, if you look at what happened at conference as well, mm. and what happened yesterday, well, I mean, that was got far too close. That was astonishing. I mean, that protester should never have got anywhere no. near him. He shouldn't no. have got anywhere near the stage, never mind anywhere near him enough to, to actually drop stuff on him. Because, I mean, people said, oh, uh, he obviously tried to look as if he didn't mind. Well, I think most of us would be pretty shaken by yeah. somebody going that close to you and being able to physically touch you and drop something on your head. Anything could have happened. I mean, he handled it brilliantly. Yeah. I and mean, yesterday, the protesters got far too close mm. as well. Yeah. So I think that needs that obviously needs to be looked at. Well, particularly now when we've got the Prime Minister telling the police and the security services to prepare for some kind of terrorist activity. Yeah. You know, because I think they're going to have to get to grips with this, with the marches that are going through central London. There's another one planned for Saturday, a uh, big rally at uh, Trafalgar Square. We saw last night mm. a load of people turning up at Liverpool Street Station. Um, absolutely interfering with people who are just trying to go about their daily business. And I think in times of kind of terror, you really don't want the police to be distracted by, you know, hundreds, possibly thousands of people marching about, um, preventing them from even policing the streets. They're stretched. I mean, I think, look, you know, we are lucky we could live in a, we live in a country where you can protest and you're free to protest. But I do worry, I think we all worry that this war in the Middle East could come arrive in the UK well, I mean, that's in the most the terrible way. Well, we had an incident in Paris yesterday where the police yeah. shot dead a woman on the metro uh, who was starting to blow herself up. You know, I'm surprised that we haven't yet had something like that. It's probably down to the good work of the of security services. Yeah, but it's a worrying time for an awful lot of people. And, and can I mean, you imagine think... could the Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition, being in a position where he could be attacked? So yeah. I think that needs that has to be right. I think they have to address it, absolutely. Let's just move on uh, briefly, James. Um, Dominic Cummings making a lot of the front pages. Uh, now Cummings feels the heat. The Daily Mail trying to make him out to be the worst uh, sort of offender in the whole COVID series. It was quite entertaining television yesterday. But mm. thinking <laughs> back to that time, um, I don't know how you were affected by it. I mean, it was a very weird time for, for everyone. I was mm. working every day, but the streets were deserted for a while. You know, it was a very odd time. And we're learning now more and more what we sort of suspected, that basically nobody really knew what was going on. Well, we were all affected, weren't we? Yeah. In, in a, to a greater, lesser extent. But, what, I mean, Dominic Cummings was right. I mean, I know he incites strong feelings from most people, mm. but he was right. Mm. I mean, thank God he was there. Because, uh, uh, well, I think he was right. You know, the the, the, the debate about lockdowns can continue yeah. and this inquiry, yeah. that's one of the but reasons the inquiries is they seem, but... They both, both he and Boris Johnson and others seem to sort of shilly-shally between different yeah. points of view at different times. No, no, it was chaos. Mm. I mean, it clearly was chaos and dysfunction. So when you say he was right, what are you saying he was right about? I'm saying he was right that the NHS would have collapsed if we hadn't had a lockdown. Right. I think that's my personal view. Uh -huh. But there are other views. Well, some I mean, people would say that the NHS did collapse. I mean, that's part of the problem. The NHS, which was already not in a great place, yeah. is now much worse because of what happened during COVID. Well, there are knock-on effects for the NHS and the economy. And right. I mean, that, that's why we're having an inquiry and that's the debate. But... I mean, at least Dominic Cummings had a consistent point of view and argued for it. Mm. Boris Johnson, the famous trolley, yeah. Boris Johnson, Cummings calls him, didn't seem to 
know what to do from one week to the next. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty shocking, actually. Yeah. I mean, well, I think one of the most shocking things that he came out with, and we're seeing pictures now from the COVID inquiry mm. that's live going on today. Um, one of the most shocking things was his kind of categorisation of members of the cabinet as being pretty much useless and not really fit for purpose and not really in charge of anything. And most of the jobs that were being done, seemingly, were being done by officials. Yeah, well, Dominic Cummings, I mean, he does seem to think that he would have done a better job yeah. in nearly every job in the world. Right. Up to an yes. I mean, I think of the United certain, States than yeah, anyone I, who actually I, does them. So, I, I mean, think there is an amount of self-delusion going on. Yeah. And also, you know, he was part of that machine. Yeah. So for him to kind of, um, you know, be very, very um, dismissive of it and how useless it all was, well, he was at the heart of it. Well, I know it's 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 a bit selective, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, I mean, he's a, he's an interesting character. I mean, he is. I, I, I happen I mean, to think he was, was right under lockdown, but honestly, you know, you were there, mm. mate. Um, it's it's all very convenient, yeah. but when you look back at it, you realise that you were right about everything, and everyone else was either wrong yeah. or incompetent or both. Yes, I mean, a bit of a bit of humility wouldn't go amiss. Yes, to be I don't think he does humility very well. <laughs> no. The fact that he sat in Holy Island preparing himself for this particular yeah. day in in, uh, in the sunshine tells you all you need to know about him, and also the fact that he became kind of obsessed with bringing down Boris Johnson. And I think he still is obsessed yeah, with that. I think clearly. he's still very much a guy who wants to kind of seek and act out some kind of revenge play uh, on a man that he thinks somehow uh, was so useless that he should have never been in Downing Street. Well, well, what, he helped put him in well, there. Well, he's the one who got him in Downing well, exactly. Street. I mean, but should he, maybe he should have thought about that before he decided to make him Prime Minister. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's you put that in an interesting way. I mean, was it Dominic Cummings that made him Prime Minister? Yeah, 100%. I mean, certainly Boris Johnson was good at getting uh, a victory at the election. I said this yesterday, that, you know, when that election happened and Labour were trounced and there was an 80-seat majority, yeah. um, we moved into January, we we're moving out of the European Union, it all seemed like a very rosy place. The world seemed like mm. this could be really an opportunity for Britain to become a very, very much better country. And then it all kind of went down the toilet. Yeah, I mean, COVID, we couldn't plan for that, could you? But, um, oh, I clearly didn't. Um, but look, you know, Dominic Cummings, is strategy, he was the master tactician. Yeah. And Boris was the front of house guy. So Dominic Cummings, you know, he destroyed the man he made promise. Mm. It's all... Um, I mean, it, it's a bit unedifying. You, you don't want to sound pompous, but no. this is a great country. We're yeah. still a great country. Yeah. Our best days are ahead of us. But that episode... I mean, honestly, you do think, just let the other laugh. Yeah, honestly. well, I know. I mean, we'll hear more, I'm sure, from, from the COVID inquiry today. But we've got some breaking news now. Uh, some video uh, has emerged of some trapped Britons trying to flee uh, the Gaza border into Egypt. Hundreds of Brits uh, who have been trapped in Gaza since the start of the deadly attack on Israel on October the 7th are making a desperate plea uh, to flee to safety following days of bombings and targeted roads. And you're looking at now uh, Britons at the border uh, with Egypt. Obviously, there are problems getting into Egypt because the Egyptians certainly don't want and have made it very clear that they do not want to offer any kind of refuge to refugees coming from Gaza. So uh, we will keep our eyes on that. And it is um, a very, very difficult situation. I mean, just coming back to Keir Starmer, James, I mean, mm. can you see anything happening there that might make his position, you know, less tenable, if you like, on the, on the ceasefire front? Well, I mean, God forbid that any British nationals will be caught up in this. Um, that would... I mean, we have had British nationals caught up in it already, killed. haven't we? Because yeah. some of them have been killed. British nationals may be uh, taken hostage. We're not absolutely sure. Yeah. But certainly dual nationality, anyway. Well, I think if... That's why you need a ceasefire. Mm. I want to see. Uh, sorry, that's why you need a humanitarian pause, not yeah. a ceasefire, because you want to get these people out. Mm. Uh, 
that's why Keir called for a humanitarian pause, yeah. so that those borders could be open and allow foreign nationals. Tricky though, isn't it? Because if Egypt says they're not going to take any uh, refugees from Palestine, yeah. then how do you get foreign nationals in there as well? Well, I think well, I'm sure you can figure it out. I mean, let, let's hope that. Let, well, I hope we've got people on the ground sorting it out as we speak. Yeah, I expect we do. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, we'll see. We'll keep you updated, of course, uh, with all of that. Um, and as far as the um, uh, the sort of the, the the ground being laid, I suppose for the next election. Mm. Um, a um, lot of uh, fuss was made, I suppose, of the two Labour victories and those two by-elections recently. Um, that's all kind of forgotten about now, isn't it? Because we've moved into another phase. But, I mean, how confident are you that, that you know, Labour can win a big enough majority, if they can win a big enough majority, mm. to actually govern? Because I'm, I'm one of those who thinks that, yes, they may win, but they may not win by much. Well, no, I think that's probably right. Mm. Um, I think Keir Starmer probably will be Prime Minister, but he may be prime head of a coalition or he may be... Uh, have a majority of 20 or 30, yeah. in which case there's an awkward squad in the Labour Party that might make things difficult. Yeah. I mean, we, we can't, obviously we can't know. I mean, you say the by-elections have been forgotten. They'll only be forgotten until the next by-elections, mm. which won't be far away. No. I mean, there's a by-election every there month. There seems to be one every month. It does seem like that, doesn't it? And, and again, um, nobody's that surprised when, when the swing massively goes towards the Labour Party. Yeah, and I'd expect the in same. Fact, I'm, the next I wouldn't two. be surprised if the next time, if it doesn't go quite as well, if it only, it's only 15% swing, people will start talking Starmer down. Yeah, you can't. It's almost, you know, how much is enough? Yes. Um, look, you know, the mathematics are there. We all know the electoral mathematics. Labour are 130 seats behind. So you're right to say that the next Labour government, if there is one, yeah. might be a tricky, uh, might be tricky to run. Yeah. Could, that could happen. We yeah. just don't know. Absolutely. James Robinson, thank you very much uh, indeed. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it is time for Taking the Mic. Now, I don't know about you, but apparently a weather bomb is something which is much more serious than just weather. And they're calling it a weather bomb because it's on its way here and it's got a name and it's called Storm Kieran. And we're going to be hearing all about it all the way through today, probably all the way through tomorrow. There'll be trains probably cancelled, there'll be buses cancelled, there'll be roads flooding, uh, there'll be roads closed, there'll be people uh, complaining that their houses are getting flooded. What I can tell you, of course, is that most of the people in this country who will suffer the bad effects of flooding uh, will be the victims of bad policy. They'll be the victims of bad judgment. They'll be the victims of bad preparation. What they won't be is victims of bad weather. Because what we do know uh, is that the water companies in this country are not fit for purpose. They can't handle too much water when it comes, and they can't handle not enough water when it isn't there. So at the end of the day, what you can do is urge your local council to make sure that they clear the drains so that the water that does fall from the sky can actually run into those drains and disappear uh, into a river or into the sea. Because at the moment, what we've got is a whole bunch of people who are going to have very miserable days and nights because they are going to have to either move out of flooded homes or they're going to have to just somehow try and get the water out of their houses. Lots of people have suffered from this over the past course of uh, months and lots of people will suffer over the course of the winter. But it's a solvable problem. Storm Kieran is supposedly going to cause a danger to life, that's what we're told. And that, of course, is something that we should try to avoid. There's going to be heavy rain. Uh, the country is set to be battered with strong winds. There's amber warnings all over the place. The southwest and the southeast of England and parts of Wales uh, could be uh, at risk. And I'm telling you, there will be an awful lot of upheaval. But the councils are the people that can fix all of this. And that's what they have to do. So if anybody tells you it's climate change, if anybody tells you 
that there's more rain than there used to be. That's simply not the case. What we can say, however, uh, is that planning laws haven't been properly followed. Floodplain building has been an absolute nightmare. And if you're unlucky enough to be in a place where it does get flooded, uh, do call us, do get in touch and do tell us what is going on. Because what I can tell you is that every place I go that has been flooded, every street that I see uh, that's got loads of standing water on it, is only there for one reason. It's because the water isn't going anywhere. And it's time they sorted it out. And that is taking the mic. Now, moving on, another story that we've been talking about an awful lot uh, on this show, an awful lot on this station as well, is the XL bully dog problem. Uh, they're going to be added to the list of animals banned under the Dangerous Dogs Act from the end of this year. Now, we've been talking about this in the last couple of weeks because Rishi Sunak came out and said that this was going to happen. But there are supposed to be loads and loads of these dogs currently up and down the country and people who own them don't really know what they're supposed to do. I'm joined now by the CEO of All Dogs Matter, Ira Moss. Ira, very good uh, morning to you. Thanks Hi. for joining us. Morning. I'm a bit confused about this whole XL bully situation because you read one headline one day and you read another headline mm. another day. I thought I'd read either end of last week or early this week that as of today, there was to be no more XL bully dogs because they've been outlawed. So what's the actual situation? So as far as we, um, we also know, we were also a little bit confused because um, it came in so quickly. We knew the ban was coming in, um, but we didn't realise it was going to be from today. But from what we've read, um, it's coming in today, but you have our owners have uh, up until January to register, neuter, microchip and, and insure their dogs. Right. Um, and that's when everything has to be banned. So, in, in effect, on the 2nd of January, for argument's sake, if you are seen with one of these dogs um, and your dog isn't chipped or, or on a lead or on a muzzle, the dog can be seized from you right. and taken away and destroyed. And who's going um, to be doing all of that seizing, though? Um, is it the police? Well, this, 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 this is the thing. In, in theory, it's the status dog unit because you have to be um, a registered um sort of police service, or, or, if you like, or dog warden to recognise the breed. Right. Um, and that, that is quite difficult. It's sort of a bit, bit like the pit bulls. It's down to measurement. There, there is a look, um, which is similar to some of the dogs that you just had on your clip previously. Um, but the, the, the main problem is that we're getting so many calls now, as soon as this, these announcements come in, uh, it's like a hotline. We're just we're getting 20 calls a day of people that have obviously bought these dogs. They're claiming they're not their dogs, they're their friends' uncle's brother's dogs, right. um, and they no longer want them. So where are these dogs going to go? That's our kind of main right. concern. And how many of these dogs are we talking about? Do you have enough, a rough idea of how many there are? Well, they became the sort of status dog just after lockdown. Um, I, we're in we're a London-based charity. Uh, I don't know how many. Um, they were brought in originally from the States. Um, they've been, I, I don't have the actual figures. No one knows the actual figures of how many there there are um, because they're not registered. Um, I would imagine there must be a, thou a thousand plus because so many people have been breeding off them and obviously you know, people have been making a lot of money off these dogs. And as far, so, as, the, um, and as, and as, far as the breeding kind of niceties go, I've also been told that, you know, it's difficult necessarily to isolate an awful lot of the breeds because many of them are sort of mixed up in more ways than one, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the pocket bully as well. So there's a smaller version of the breed. Um, so uh, we're not sure 
where the put the pocket bully falls into this category it's just a smaller version of of, of the of the dog mm. um and and they're so crossed as well i mean there is a look but it's how you define that look right. which i think is going to be the problem and, and and the amount that are now going to be abandoned because unfortunately they have attracted they seem to attract um not a very um committed owner in, in a lot of cases. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of committed owners out there, um, but we literally, as soon as any of the, these announcements come into place, we see a huge rise in calls of people wanting to relinquish these dogs, and there's right. just not the spaces. The charities, in theory, can't take them in, because if they do take them in, if we take them in, that means we have to put them to sleep, and no one wants to do that. Right. Um, I know they're offering to the government are saying that they will pay owners if there's almost a, they can reclaim money if their dog is euthanized at a vet. Um, I'm not sure how many vets are going to want to kind of be involved in that program. Yeah. Right. And presumably as well, the people who are breeding these dogs are making a pretty penny mm. out of it. I mean, oh, you're not going to yeah. be able to convince them to stop breeding dogs, are you? Just because um, well, it's going to well, be supposedly they... illegal. Well, they are. This is the problem. People that are still breeding them because they're not selling them now. We are starting to see people calling um, that have allegedly um, litters of puppies by mistake. It's, it was always a mistake. It was never intentional. But suddenly they, they've got these these litters of puppies that they can no longer sell. Um, so so they want to abandon them. But again, for charities to take them in, what do we do with them once, once we have them? Um, I mean, a guy called us the other day. He had three, which he admitted that he'd paid £7,000 for. Um, but didn't want them because he was moving the next day or usually the excuse is they're moving the next day yeah. or, or, you know, similar reasons. Um, but who pays £7,000 for a dog? Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy. What, why would you, unless you're planning on making your money back from that dog by breeding right. of them? Right. And all, all, all these people are doing are breeding more dogs that are just ultimately going to get put to sleep. That's, that's all that's happening. Right. These dogs are being born. They're being born to be killed, really, yes. in a lot of cases. But that's obviously what's driving it, isn't it? Because people have been asking me, you know, oh. where have all these dogs suddenly come from? You know, why is this suddenly a thing? Yeah. It's clearly being driven by money. Well, if you go money. online... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and if you go, the, 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 the problem for us is we've been saying for years now, it's how easy it is to get one of these dogs. So anyone can go online um, on any of the online, um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say, the, the online sites that they're available, and you can, anyone can go and pick one up. You can be a 12-year-old, see one for sale, or for advertise for free. A lot of, in a lot of cases, which is even worse, because people can't get rid of these dogs and they don't want to pay to put them to sleep. They're given away for free, which is even more dangerous, which is why I think we've seen such a rise in attacks for right. these dogs, because anyone can think, oh, that's a shame, that poor dog hasn't got a home, I'll go and get one, right. takes this dog home, they've got three kids at home and another dog, and before you know it, that, that's where these fatalities um, right. come into play, or they leave them tied up in a park because no one wants to take them, the dog panics breaks its leash and, you know, all have it breaks loose. And, and and sadly, we have seen a lot of fatalities. These are yeah. very big, powerful dogs. They can be lovely, but they are very, very powerful. Yes, they seem to be. And also, whenever I've seen any footage of, of these dogs attacking people, they seem to have mm. a particular keenness to go for the throat, which is not something you see yeah. other dogs necessarily doing, but they're sort of leaping up all the time, trying to get to the, to the yeah. throat of, of the human. Yeah. Well, I think, I think most dogs instinctively, if they want to kill another dog or a rabbit or, or, or whatever, the throat is where they'll, invariably, the throat's where they'll go for. But because these dogs have got so much power and they're bigger, um, it, it, it is easier for them to, to go for that that part. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, any, you know, a chihuahua could go for your throat, yeah. but obviously the, the damage from a chihuahua... 
uh, a lot further to jump, but they're smaller and, yeah. and, and wouldn't cause as much damage. But, you know, chihuahuas bite as well, but it's just the, 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 the pure, the, the, the bite yes. of one of those, you know, of that jaw that, you know, the head is often the size of a watermelon. Right. Um, and, and as I said, you know, we have a lot that are, are lovely, you know, there's nothing wrong with them, but if it is going to go wrong and, and we're getting calls from people that just, they're not exercising these dogs, they're cooped up in flats, yeah. they're often crated. We have, um, we, we find them in properties, they're left in flats when, when they were breeding from them, they're kept in flats, crated all day long on their own because they're just kept for breeding purposes. Mm. And of course, when you let them out, you're, you're letting out a caged lion almost. Right. Um, any animal would, could react in that way. Um, but, the, but the problem here is um, they're often just being let out in, into parks on their own and with people that should, quite frankly, in our opinion, not be taking hamsters home, let alone no. dogs of this size and, and that can cause so much damage if it is to go wrong. Yeah, that is an absolute terrible situation as well. Ira, thanks very much indeed. Ira Moss there from Thank All Dogs you. Matter. We're going to speak uh, to a former Prime Minister uh, from Australia. It's the last day of the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship Conference here in London. Um, people from around the world have been in attendance to it. And I'm delighted to now be joined uh, by former Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Scott, very good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Good day, Mike. It's good to be here and uh, with so many Australian colleagues who are here with me also um, yes. over these last few days. It's been terrific. Yeah, it's been an interesting event, hasn't it? Because many people have uh, have been there to sort of talk about the way that the world is right now, the way that it needs to be sort of shaped, perhaps, uh, to, 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 to deal with all the various challenges. I mean, the most uh, pressing one at the moment, of course, is the situation in the Middle East. Of course. And and that's, you know, very top of mind and very present in our own thinking. In fact, just in the last few days, while I've been here, uh, former Prime Ministers Abbott and Howard are here as well, but... Uh, the six former living prime ministers, uh, bar one, issued a very strong statement in relation to support for Israel and the situation in the Middle East and, and thinking of, of all the devastating loss of life and what we're seeing there and, and, and hopeful for you know, a, a more positive outcome. But right now, it's, it's a very difficult time. Uh, but uh, you're right. I think ARC is really providing uh, a good place for many issues to be raised. I mean, the coverage of issues here has been quite extraordinary. It's been everything from world peace to childcare. And I think that's terrific because it does demonstrate that there are so many different elements and strands and streams that people of goodwill have to address in order, you know, as they say here, for a better story and to make the world a better place. And I think that's what's drawn the interest of so many from so many different perspectives. Yes, and the letter that, that you guys have written um, talks about uh, the condemning of the hatred being spread by Hamas. Um, is your letter... Yes. Um, one of those which backs what other people have said uh, in, in various different political circles, a ceasefire situation, or uh, do you understand Israel's need not to do that? No, it doesn't call for that. What it calls for uh, is that, you know, Israel will do everything it can within its, uh, its, its own efforts to, you know, ensure that it minimises as, as far as humanly possible uh, the suffering that is undoubtedly taking place. Uh, but this is a, you know, a, a very... Uh, egregious thing that has occurred in the Middle East and Israel has the right to vent itself and but needs to do so obviously um, within the bounds which they, they full well know yeah. and uh, and so we look forward to them to doing that and we, we pray that they'll be able to achieve that. Um, it, is a, it is a highly distressing situation and sadly one that has seen in, in our own country uh, the rise of anti-Semitic protests and, uh, and targeting of, of, of Jewish people in Australia which is abhorrent 
uh, beyond belief in a country such as Australia. Mm. Well, I did want to ask you about that because I've, I've been really mm. quite shocked by the reaction in different countries in the world, in Australia for one, also in Britain as well, in the United States and in other parts of Europe. You know, have you been as mm. surprised as I have at the way that some elements of the, of the communities uh, in our countries have behaved? Yes. I mean, but I wouldn't pretend to think, particularly in Australia, I can't speak for other places like here, um, not being from here, but um, I, I wouldn't pretend for a second that that's a widespread view within Australia, not at all, quite the contrary. Of course, everything I think in Australia is very concerned about the situation and, and, and the terrible suffering that's taking place. But uh, overwhelmingly, Australians would have no part in the sort of anti-Semitic behaviour, which has seemed to you know, justify uh, the atrocities that were committed by Hamas. And we have to continue to remember that that's what, that's what initiated this. These were terrorist atrocities. And in my own statement to the parliament at the time, I said, I think we have to be careful of even calling it a war because war and describing it in those terms somehow could justify or seek to justify the other combatant. Well, there could be no justification for the terrorism exhibited by Hamas and that must be wiped. And why do you think um, that apart from um, uh, Mr Paul Keating, uh, you were all able to mm. sign this, but he wasn't. What was his reasoning? Did he give a reason why he didn't sign the letter? Oh, look, that's up to Paul. I mean, it's not a caucus form of prime ministers. Um, you know, people are willing and free to join or not join as, as they saw fit. And, and so, you know, I, I respect Paul's decision. Uh, that's, that's a matter for him. Others uh, felt very strongly. I mean, and across both sides of the political fence and across different generations too. And I think that hopefully has provided a great deal of comfort to Jewish people in Australia and I hope around the world. Um, that there is that strong expression of support and empathy and, and prayers for a, a peace that uh, will, will come. I think it's also important, and I am pleased to see that this is now getting some attention, that there is thought going into then what next and how is the situation uh, of, of, of peace and stability and hospitals and schools and proper states being able to function uh, in Gaza and indeed the West Bank and other places. Uh, we all believe in a two-state solution, but you need an effective other state. I mean, that's what the people of Gaza need. They need an effective state where people are more interested in running hospitals and schools than they are building rockets yeah. and advancing terror on those on the other side of the border. And uh, so to go back to your earlier question, no, it wasn't a call for a ceasefire. And uh, I, I was a bit disappointed, frankly, that the Australian government didn't stand with Israel and the United Nations on that motion recently. I mean, that's up to them to make those decisions. They're the government now. Uh, but at a time when I think it's important where countries have historically, like Australia, stood with Israel, then we must continue to do so now. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV, the place for the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And sometimes we get that, of course, from you. And we'd love to hear from you in this hour. So do make that call, 0344 499 1000. We've got some really interesting comments uh, on the XL bullies, uh, which are now banned dogs, but nobody's quite sure exactly how they're going to do it. Never mind. Uh, let's talk about something else in the meantime. A landmark summit on artificial intelligence is kicking off today. World leaders and tech whizzes from Elon Musk to Kamala Harris, I'm not quite sure which category she's in, have jetted in to Bletchley Park in Milton Keynes with Rishi Sunak, facing warnings not to ignore the threats that AI pose to people's jobs here and now. Rishi Sunak announced this last week that he was going to have this safety institute dedicated to artificial intelligence. And everybody kind of went, huh? 
That's a bit of a strange timing to do something like that. But with me to discuss it, the broadcaster Emma Wolfe. Emma, very good morning to you. Good morning. Um, it was kind of odd timing, wasn't it, last week? In the midst of all of the madness that was going on around uh, Israel and, and Hamas and, and mm. the, uh, the, the Gaza uh, and people being evacuated and people, you know, Israel getting bombed and all the rest of it, um, suddenly Rishi Sunak came out and said, we must tackle artificial intelligence. He did. I can only assume that it was on their kind of long to-do list Yeah, from and the that summer. it was just and kind it was, of needed you know, to be done. This is what we're going to do this week. So in politics, you always have to do what you said you were going to do. Yeah. And the strangest thing about his statement was that it was basically a list of all the potential threats. And he said, don't worry, don't worry, we've got it all under control, which yeah. we absolutely haven't. Right. There's one thing we know about <laughs> artificial intelligence, Mike. It's an unregulated arms race. No, th this, this summit of Bletchley Park, of course it's at Bletchley Park, yeah. is an attempt to, for the UK to lead the way yes. on regulation of AI. We can't even regulate like the bits of the internet that are within the control of the United States. Well, nobody's Kingdom. very sure we how We can't to... even shut down like paedophilia right. and nasty, nasty messages right. online. Right. We're not gonna lead the way on artificial intelligence. Even the creators of artificial intelligence have been warning that right. it's potentially completely out of control. So, so what's the plan here? Well, this is the trouble that I have, and we're watching uh, the summit as it uh, gets underway. Fascinating, right now. isn't it? I mean, um, look, there's well, going to be people. You know, and I said, I said this last week, you know, to, not to be unfair to Rishi Sunak, but I mean, I think most people don't walk around wondering about what's going to happen with artificial intelligence. I mean, no. Most people have got priorities. They might be worried about whether their house is going to flood over the course of the next few yeah. days, whether the road is going to flood, whether their car is going to get nicked, whether their kids are going to be safe walking the streets. Yeah. I don't think anybody's well, ever coming up to you, are they, and no, saying? Not really. Artificial intelligence, got to watch out for that. Got to watch out for that. They might be noticing that their jobs are being replaced mm. by these bots. They might be noticing that in the supermarkets there are no people because yeah. it's all tills, right. which constantly break. Right. They might be noticing all sorts of things in the way that AI is kind of negative. The weird thing about Rishi Sunak's statement, sorry, just to come back to that, was that he listed your know, bioterrorism, yeah. um, the fact that the economy could be decimated by mm. people losing their jobs, all the threats, and then he said, oh, but it's all okay. We're going to mitigate those threats. And he didn't say how. Right. And so I don't know well, what Well, this is it. I mean, the AI Safety Institute is one of those very highfalutin terms. Nobody really knows what it means. I don't know what the Safety Institute is for. I don't know what we're safeguarding me from. I don't know exactly what he's worried about. And the thing that I worry more about is that the people who mostly warn about the dangers of artificial intelligence are the people who invented it. They're the, they're the like, well, Hang on. You guys started this. Can't you just make it safe? And also, how trustworthy are the tech mob? I mean... Do you, remember when, do you remember when it came out that all the kind of, all the guys who invented Apple and Facebook and, and Twitter and everything, they don't let their children ever go online. They don't let their children right. anywhere near the internet. They don't let their children right. do online gaming Can't or have any a of that. Forget about it. Yeah. yeah. So, so why is this a good plan? Yeah. And what is the plan though exactly? I mean, do you know? The, the plan, as I see it, is the plan as I've heard it, is for the UK to lead the way mm. in the regulation. Right. Because we but, have yeah, such well, a... Yeah, well, that's fine. We have such that's a That's a very good political this. answer. You yeah. could be a politician with that answer. Yeah. But what about actually what the plan will be? How will you regulate it? Well, exactly. Right. But that's your question for Rishi Sunak, yeah. not for me, because no. I know less than nothing about artificial right. intelligence. Right. But this is the problem. As you say, I mean, you can't even regulate Twitter, you know, well, X or whatever it's now called. You can't yeah. regulate Facebook. No. I mean, it's much easier to get knocked off Facebook if you do something which I would regard as relatively benign yeah. than it is, as you say, uh, if you're going to post a picture of somebody getting beheaded or you're going to post some horrible uh, revenge porn. You know, things don't seem to get deleted. I mean, I've had 
many battles over the years. I mean, I've, I've sort of started blocking a lot of people now, but, yeah. you know, you would get all sorts of horrible threats, all sorts of ghastly things said, you know, things said about your family. Mm. You know, again, I'm a big enough boy, I can take it, but, you know, I don't see why I should have to take it. Um, and and there we... doesn't seem to be any kind of regulation whatsoever. And if I report people to uh, the powers that be on X or whatever it's called now, they generally say, uh, this has not violated our, uh, our oh, rules and regulations. Exactly. Even though he's threatened to kill me. Well, wouldn't, exactly. You know. and wouldn't it be a start to tackle the issue of anonymity, for right. example, on yes. social media? Yeah. I mean, I think most sane people say, do you know what? If people want to say, if they want to express their opinions, they should stand up. They mm. should have a profile photo yes. and a profile name. Right. I think most people And at the very least, that. what I say to those who say, well, that wouldn't be fair because I might get fired from my job. And you go, well, in that case, maybe you shouldn't say well, things shouldn't that would get you fired. Well, you shouldn't say loathsome things yeah, that, yeah. from your job. But the other way around it, I would, I would have a halfway house perhaps and say, look, if you want to be anonymous, you must still register your name register and, in and some your way person with, 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 with the powers that be on, on the platform. But so I, that at least they know who you are. Yeah, I think it was a seminal moment. It was what, back in the spring when the creators, as you say, the creators of AI, the people that had driven many of these technologies in America started to say, this thing could potentially get out of control. Yeah. These, these machines, these programs that we've invented, these bots, all of that, could become more intelligent than we are. They could kind of take over, which right. I know sounds a bit sci-fi. But when the creators started saying that, I think it became clear just, but even these tools in the hands of the wrong people. Yeah. When we talk about things like bioterrorism, in the hands of the wrong people, are these really things that we want to invent? Mm. Well, exactly right. And also, you know, these kind of free speech fundamentalists, as I call them, yeah. people who seem to think that you can say absolutely anything without any consequence anything. whatsoever. Yeah. And create which anything. Was never, create which, anything. Which was never the intention of free speech. I mean, people misunderstand it all the time. Like when I'll have a go at somebody for saying something, people will say to me, oh, I thought you were in favour of free speech. And I'm like, yes, yeah. I've said that they can say it, but, what, but I've said that I'm going to disagree with it. And also I think now this should happen as a result of what they said. And, and have a rational argument about it. And there are also values of, you know, human values of respect mm. and allowing other people to have their view and right. tolerance and all of that, yeah. which, which, you know. Exactly right. And when you see people like Nick Clegg uh, getting up to talk about it, I mean, you always like okay. shiver, don't you? You want to have a go. Yeah, I do want to have a go. Can I we mean, just be clear? Nick let's, Clegg... Let's just talk about how Nick Clegg even ended up running Facebook. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, really? He is the president of global affairs yeah. at Facebook. Right. He is basically a very, very senior, senior figure within the whole Facebook meta corporation. He is about as trustworthy, as I've said, as the rest of the tech mob. And he is there... He is in this whole AI debate mm. to resist or even to prevent regulation which doesn't work for Facebook and right. doesn't work for Meta. Right. That's his job. Right. There's no... Which, there's no which and anyway, how makes, trustworthy was Nick well, Clegg as a politician? Well, he wasn't. I mean, this is a bloke who's only famous for one thing, uh, and that's for breaking his promise to students yeah. that he wouldn't charge them any money exactly. if they went to university. And then he got into power and he went, oh, sorry about that. Sorry about that. I didn't really know what I was talking about. And then and I think swanned that, off to, yeah. to California. And the end result of his protection of, of the brand, if you like, mm -hmm. of Facebook, means that he takes no interest, clearly, in protecting children from what they may or may not see or be exposed to. He doesn't. And what's really, really loathsome at the moment is that he's dismissing all of this as moral panic. He's yeah. saying, oh, it's moral panic. It's like, it's like the moral panic over video games. 
But nobody knows. Mm. Nobody knows. And it's actually really disingenuous of him yeah. to be saying this stuff about artificial intelligence because the truth is we don't know right. and we are feeling our way and we need to have these debates. And he's trying to belittle people's yes. concerns. And also Facebook, in my experience, has been one of the most censorious platforms uh, uh, around. I mean, I remember back in the times of COVID uh, when we would post stuff from, from this very station and sometimes it would be with a clarification on Facebook yeah. saying, you know, some of the claims in this interview may not be accurate. And I'm going, sorry, this is me and Peter Hitchens talking about stuff that we know about. Yeah. And you've got some, you know, scraggy-faced, beardy guy in Sacramento going, oh, I don't think I like this. Let's put a warning on it. And you're going, sorry, mate, we've done this for quite a long yeah. time yeah. and we know what we're talking about. You do uh, your stuff yeah. and we'll do our stuff. Yeah. And let's be clear, AI, I mean, when he dismisses, when he dismisses all this, when Clegg says it's all moral panic, AI is already being used for disinformation. Right. What? What? Do you remember the Keir Starmer, the videos of Keir Starmer ranting away during the, uh, oh, yes. in the last few weeks? Yes. That was disinformation. Supposedly having a go at a, a, a colleague. Yeah, and it was complete. It was complete it was nonsense. Fake. It was yeah. fake, right. and lots of people thought it was real. This this use of AI in that way, mm. which is actually, you know, it is disinformation. Right. This is only going to get worse over the next twelve months. We've got the UK elections mm. and we've got the US elections. Right. How much more of this is going right. to circulate? And we've seen it. I'm, I'm not sure. saying that AI isn't isn't any good, but we need to we need to discuss this. Well, Clegg... we've also seen many images coming out of Gaza, haven't we? Yes, which we are have. artificially which are... created and which are or which are taken from Syria, which are right. taken war footage from right. Syria a few right. years ago, which we've ignored so but far. I've seen, and now I've weaponizing... seen posts. I've seen posts which have been CGI generated posts. Exactly. You know, and, and not everybody really... can, and not everybody can tell the difference. But when we move into other areas of intelligence and, and say, for example, healthcare, the NHS, mm. looking at records, keeping mm. records, you know, I mean, my big problem, problem with an awful lot of this stuff is who keeps the stuff, who, keeps who watches it? it, who's accessing it, what are they using it for? You know, I mean, I've heard so many politicians saying, well, of course, we wouldn't be using your data to sell to anybody else. Well, everybody else does. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Yeah. And secondly, the NHS record. I mean, this is this story today out mm. about these patient records, where the NHS finally making patient records yeah, available right. to the patient. Yeah. Well, A, the NHS's record on digitising anything mm. is appalling. It really is. And that's without even talking about the data breaches, mm. just their record, right? So, for example, the other week, I had a routine blood test at the hospital right. near me, UCH. The GP surgery can't access the blood results. So right. then you have to go. So Pauline wasted money. why can't they? Time. Why can't they don't share. blood results right. that are logged on for a patient go to a GP surgery? Mm. So that has completely right. failed. They spent millions, billions, Well, they actually, spent four billion, trying... didn't they, on a national database, yeah. which they then, after two years, worked so they out they couldn't scrap. make it work, and they scrapped it. So when you tell me that the NHS is underfunded, no, the money is pouring in it, but it's just so badly managed. Yeah. Secondly, the huge issue of data, privacy, yeah. security. Right. You think that patient records, what if I end up with my neighbour's records, right. and then I find out all about... And also What if days. you're a well-known person? Yeah. What if you're a celebrity right. and your records are leaked? Yeah. Leaked or just probably just data, but right. just, just, you know. Well, that used to be a huge issue in America back in the day when I worked there as a reporter, yeah. um, because over in America, you know, freedoms are actually a lot easier to get in all manner of different ways, yeah. because, you know, you could call up the FBI and say, are you investigating this guy? And they'd go, yeah, we are, actually. You want to we know all about it? We need health and, and, yeah, and, and you could, I mean, people had obtained, for example, during the time of AIDS, when Rock Hudson uh, was the first kind of, yeah. you know, celebrity AIDS victim, yeah. um, somebody accessed his, his uh, medical records and sold them to the National Enquirer, I think it was. But, you know, that kind of thing can happen. Yeah. And if these records are available and money changes hands, I mean, I think we've got strict enough publication rules now in this country where that might not happen. But it doesn't stop somebody leaking it onto the internet or onto Twitter exactly. or any of that sort of stuff. You it know? could easily happen. And 
it's not only, I mean, in principle, absolutely, I've thought for years that we should be able to access our own records. Yeah. Of course we right. should. But given the NHS ability to do mm. this, and given the major security issues, the major privacy yeah. issues, I think that the NHS will bungle it. Well, the other thing that's happening now as well is that the NHS is sending more and more people into private healthcare, uh, albeit that they're paying for it. So it's going to be shared by, you know, the records will be shared by more people into more private places, yeah. which are commercially and all viable. all it takes which, is one person yeah. working in a receptionist in a, in a surgery to mm. go, oh, okay, just yeah. call up somebody or other. But do you remember when you used to be given a sort of paper folder and you'd shuffle along the mm. corridor with your paper folder yeah. from one office, one right. GP, you know, one doctor yeah. to the next? Yeah. I mean, I don't know now whether they're online or on paper. No. It just seems to be a complete Well, this jungle. is one of the things that you find that's it's so ridiculous mess. inside of individual hospitals is that yeah. so many of them are still operating on paper and yeah. fax machines. I mean, exactly. some of them have still got fax machines. You're going to go, sorry, can I send you an email? No, no, sorry, we don't do that. But, I mean, unbelievable, isn't it? Um, so the future is not looking particularly bright on that front. What about um, the food business? Because let's mm. talk about that. I, I, was, I heard today on Jeremy Carl this morning on uh, Talk Today that it's National Vegan Day. Which is hilarious. To, I'm I a vegan and I didn't even know well, it's National I Vegan Day. So they've to, done a brilliant PR job I haven't job been on able that. to establish if that's actually true. It might be National <laughs> Vegan Week. It might just be Jeremy having a go at vegans. No, it was the woman who was on who said it was National Vegan Day, but she was a vegan. Anyway, um, there's some talk now that we should have health warnings on meats yeah. and we should have now. I mean, we've already been through the calorific business, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, where you yeah, go into yeah, a restaurant yeah. and you look and see how much the hamburger is going to cost Which you on really your really you off your meal. You know, when you yeah. go out, you know, a restaurant meal is a treat. Do you really want to go out and be told that your burger is a thousand calories? Yeah. It's half your well, daily consumption like, I mean, it's a calories. bit like saying to somebody when they're looking at a menu, you know, this might cause you to have a heart attack or a stroke, so maybe you shouldn't order it, no. you fat git. You know, I mean, I'm not really interested in having menus that have me, give me warnings about things, really. I mean, I kind of know what's no. good for me and what isn't. The, the, and the whole nutritional information thing is a bit of a, it's a bit of a, you know, it's red very, herring. It's very it's red herring. It's controversial. Soused uh, herring. The, the weird thing about this is that they want to put climate change warnings on the side of food. I mean, I cannot imagine anything which would irritate people right. more right. than climate change warnings. So basically, well, so if you a, eat this, yeah, you yeah, might yeah. come out and there'll be a rainstorm, which would be worse than it would have been if you right, had exactly, eaten. Exactly, exactly. You, you know, the, the, the production of animals, the consumption of meat is terribly damaging to the planet. So mm. these boffins at Durham University have decided that climate change warnings are the way to go. Honestly, I can't think of anything that will encourage people to eat eat more meat yeah. because they just get irritated by this stuff. Exactly. I think well-worded conversation about health and about explaining to people that some red meat might increase is one thing. Right. But putting climate change warnings on the side of food is never going to work. I mean, I've said for years, surely one of the best things that we should be doing, could be doing, is teaching children from a young age, even yeah. from, like, the kindergartens... To cook. To cook. How to cook. Because, you know, if you can cook... You'll understand all of that. You won't need to be warned about oh. food. You won't need to be told to to use the the, the, the leaner meats as, a, as opposed to the fattier meats. You won't need to be told that pasta you shouldn't eat it every things. single make, day. And make healthy food cheaper, yeah. more available. Explain to children like my three-year-old. I don't, you know, I've tried to explain to him that a carton of milk actually comes from cows yeah. and stuff. Right. Explain all this stuff right. to children so that they have a sane, mm. balanced approach to food yes. rather than this mad obesogenic right. society we live in, where all it is is snack, 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 yeah, snack, yeah, yeah. snack. Cafes restaurants all around you, mm. airports just throwing yeah. food just at you. Just keep all eating all day. Just keep eating all day. Never be hungry so they don't know what hunger or mm. fullness is or anything. Right. And then scream at them that they're all obese. Mm. Everyone's going to die by the age of 40. 
I mean, we t it's just, it's totally out of yeah. balance. I mean, I'm not, again, much of, a, of, of an enthusiast for sort of too much regulation, mm. but certainly it seems as though the food business has kind of exploded out of all control. When you walk into a, a you know, a petrol station, for example, and you have literally an entire rack of chocolate. Because you can't drive you know, five miles yeah. without picking but up also, something. But also, you can't also just have one kind of chocolate. You nah. have to have about 15 different varieties of each one. So, you know, you might have one that's got marshmallow in it, or you might have one that's got nuts in it, you might have one, it's the same thing. Yeah. It's like, you know, I know and all it is, like an old it's literally all it is is sugar. None of it is mm. food. Yeah. And I agree with you. I don't want to lecture people. And I really believe in the balance thing. You know, treat, of course, treat. You can't just ban people from eating chocolate or crisps or burgers, right. but as part of a healthy, balanced diet. Right. But, you know, you used to go to America where you lived there yeah. 20, 30 years ago. And that's and, and you see these huge supermarkets mm. and think, blimey. And then yeah. you see these but vast now we've got people them. that were so big that yeah. you've never seen anything like it. And that's the way we've gone. We, we've yeah. followed where America has gone. Mm. Because funnily enough, that's what we always tend to do. Um, and then the one thing that we've also copied from them uh, which we were talking about just before you came in, is the old XL bully dog scenario, which seems to me to be another ridiculously complicated sort of version of events. You know, we've now got these dogs, which are clearly being bred for Quite money, bread. right? Bread yeah. for money. There's only, and status symbol. Yeah, and but, yeah but, but the point is people are making a lot of money yeah. from them because they're selling them for thousands and thousands of pounds. Yeah. The idea that the government's going to make them illegal and some guy's going to walk down a street and arrest somebody or take the dog off them I mean, really? Do they really think that's what's actually going to happen? But why could we not have seen this when it was starting, when people were breeding highly dangerous dogs, however many years ago this all started, this whole XL bully? I mean, the, the clue is in the name, yeah, surely. right. And there's no, there's no question about why these owners have these dogs. It's right. for aggression yeah. and for status symbol yes. and for a kind of, I don't know, it's just they're, they're clearly a bad idea. Mm. It really is awful. Emma, thank you very much indeed. Um, Emma Wolf will be back soon, I hope, yeah. um, on this show on the Independent Republican Mike Graham. We're actually moving, in case you didn't know, uh, to nine o'clock, coming this Monday. You won't want to miss that. Uh, lots of you have been getting in touch, though, and you can have your say on all the socials, on Talk TV, of course, and on the phones, 0344 499 Let's go uh, to a caller. Anne is in Hertfordshire, wants to talk uh, about medical records, because, Anne, uh, have you got a story for us? What would you like to say? Yeah, Hi. Um... Hi. Yeah, I wanted to get the medical medical notes of my children because mm. I was in a bad house fire and my three small children, our three small children died, and I wanted oh to get the God. medical notes in my house. Right. And I contacted a lawyer to do that, and he said I could, and he sent a letter to the hospital for me, and they agreed to meet with us. Right. And what we found out was they, without our consent, they used the children's body parts for their medical research. Really? And I had to rebury my children. Goodness gracious. And when did all this happen? Right. That was uh, 15 years ago. Okay. And did you get any and kind of... three coffins in my children's grave. I've got six. And did you then... And, and how, did, how did you find out then? You, what, you got your hands on their actual records after death? Yeah, I got a phone call from a lady in Cambridge who right. said she was part of the litigation of right. the families. There was 2,000 families involved. Right. That's a shocking statement. So, so did, you get any, did you get any kind of apology from them or anything at I, all? I got an apology, but we took them to the High Court and we lost the case. Really? That's extraordinary. And the only people that gave us any money was the News of the World. Right. They were fantastic. They sent mm. a limo to pick me up. Mm. They were lovely. Yeah. 
That's just awful, isn't it? What a terrible story. Yeah. And thank you, you for just telling don't know us. What, and they said that they legally were allowed to do it. They weren't legally allowed to do it. They didn't ask us if they, we, they could do it. Right. I mean, this is the trouble. This is the problem. And thank you very much indeed for... I don't for... want it to happen to anyone else. No, of course not. We'll look into that as well. That's a very interesting yeah. um, story. And I've got the children's notes now in my house. Yeah, yeah. But they charge me £50 for each one. Mm. Shocking. Absolutely shocking. This is the thing, Emma, isn't it? The problem with health records and also the way that the NHS sometimes treats people like that. That is um, absolutely and they, appalling and they, makes the grieving process so mm. much more, you know, complicated. And we had a scandal like this, didn't we, um, with Alder Hay Hospital, I think it yeah. was, a few years ago, yeah. uh, where body parts were being used without the family's permission. And if anyone tries to talk about it, whistleblowers mm. in the NHS are absolutely not tolerated. Oh. I mean, apparently it's getting better. Well, we better. saw what happened at Nottingham, didn't we? I mean, you know, that's the problem, is, is that people protect each other. Exactly. And they don't want to talk about things that might end up being very negative. Yeah, and if you've ever lost a parent or whatever, if you try and get records about the, you know, about the process of the dying and all of that, it's yeah. very, very, it's a very kind of murky area. Yeah, yeah. absolutely right. So sorry um, got some uh, interesting comments on the XL bully front. Andrew says, it's the idiots that own the dogs thinking that they're cool. Yeah. Barry says, the Dangerous Dogs Act fell into disrepute due to breed interpretation. Exactly the same will happen again. It's another example of the public being brainwashed. That is the problem, isn't it? Because... When they brought in the Dangerous Dogs Act before and they tried to ban sort of, you know, what they called American pit bull terriers, they found that you could get around the act by simply having the breed slightly mixed uh, so that it wasn't actually a purebred... And actually some of those were potentially more dangerous yeah. well, um, and just didn't have the, the purebred... Right. The name. This is apparently how we've got to this XL Bully front because they've become much more I mean, aggressive. I can't even listen to the name XL no. Bully. It's just so aggressive. Mm. As a, as a non-dog person, it's yeah. just such an aggressive name. It really is. But apparently, because of the way that they have been bred, they've sort of taken the most aggressive sort of traits, if oh, you like, from all awful. sorts of different Honestly, dogs and mixed them together to make it all even worse. Julie says, ban the idiots who use these dogs for fighting. That's who we need to ban. Uh, Chelsea says, why should any dog be banned? Surely it should be the owners that get banned. They're the ones turning dogs into monsters. All a dog wants is love, and they will give it back tenfold. Well, that's... Possibly true in most cases, but not in all cases, unfortunately. A dog, and, and I speak as, you know, I sp I've spoken to a friend of mine who is a dog owner who mm. loves dogs, but says a dog is never 100% safe. Any dog can turn. No. You know, you can train your dog brilliantly, and these XL bullies yeah. are not always well-trained, but you can you can really have a dog who's very well-controlled, who really does listen, but they can always turn, and you can never be absolutely sure. For example, a dog with a near a baby yes. or near a young child. I mean, I always shudder always when I see that. always have to monitor that. that situation. Yeah, I always shudder when I see that, because it can be just something that the dog sees and doesn't like, or the dog suddenly flips, or the dog suddenly doesn't like the fact that uh, there's another creature around him. Yeah, or a child makes a move towards a dog and doesn't realise that you don't, you know, that you don't touch dogs. As someone pushing a pram down the street, when I see an XL bully or any of those kind of dangerous right. dogs, I feel absolutely terrified because dogs are at the level of little little people. Mm. You know, I know. It they, is they dreadful. Uh, Colin says, owners need harsher penalties. Just get some other type of aggressive dog next. Maybe a Rottweiler or an American bully dog. Uh, are we just going to keep banning every type of breed? Uh, in the end, all we'll be left with are terriers. Well, I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? You know, I mean, I don't know who these police uh, dog officers are going to be who are going to be wandering around the country, you know, and sort of you know, occasionally arresting people and occasionally catching up with some dog that doesn't have a muzzle on. It's, it's going to be like carnage, isn't it? It's absolutely, it seems very unlikely. I, I mean, mean, I don't think there's going to be too many people volunteering to walk down a street to see whether or not there's any illegal dogs there. No, and, um, you know, lions and tigers and things are quite dangerous animals as well, but we keep mm. them behind bars. There yeah. isn't any reason for these dogs to be on our streets. King Charles is in Kenya for a state visit and he didn't shy away from talking about our colonial 
history in his speech. Have a listen to this. There were abhorrent and unjustifiable acts of violence committed against Kenyans as they waged, as you said at the United Nations, a painful struggle for independence and sovereignty. And for that, there can be no excuse. No excuse. Uh, many people didn't think that King Charles would go quite as far as he did. Uh, he didn't quite apologise because there's government policy which suggests that you can't actually do that uh, as the ruling monarch. Um, and he doesn't appear to want to move anywhere near uh, the conversation about reparations. But um, it's obviously a very touchy subject. And um, as we were talking about earlier on in the show, this isn't a long time ago we're talking about. We're talking about uh, in the reign uh, of Queen Elizabeth II, King Charles's mother. Let's talk now uh, to the editor-in-chief of Majesty magazine, Ingrid Seward. Ingrid, uh, very good morning to you. Thanks for uh, joining good us. Good morning. Um, this was an interesting speech for, for lots of reasons, really. Did he go further than you expected him to? No, I think it was very measured. I think that King Charles is a wonderful orator and he manages to slip the really important pieces, which he described as with deepest regret. He manages to slip that into like the main body of his speech in a very professional way. So it's very smooth. I, I, I was so impressed by his speech because he also made it very personal at the beginning. Then you have, you can feel then the hand of the government written part and they had to say something, but you know, he he was delivering that. And I he delivered it as if he really, really meant it. So I think it went down pretty well. Yes, and I think there's obviously enough time has passed between uh, those times and now for, for there to be some sort of, I suppose, recognition, if nothing else, um, that all was not as it should have been. Um, but in the end, also, it was a, a very different time as well. So, I mean, he had to make sure that he didn't, overstep that apology mark because I think I'm told that politically speaking he can't do that can he? No he can't I mean the Mau Mau rising I believe it actually just started when uh, Princess Elizabeth and and Philip were, were there visiting Kenya just before literally just before her father died and the Mau, there was already rumblings and they were sort of saying we can't go there there's Mau Mau but yeah. what it was was um, it was a the tribal, the Kikuya tribe, I think I think that's how you pronounce it. Forgive me if I'm wrong. They they were uprising really against the ancient white settlers right. of Africa who took their land. So it's a bit like, if you like, it's a bit like the Indians and the Americans. So we came and settled on their lands, and they were rent. They had to move. So it's a, it was a very it was very poignant, but. Uh, I think about in 1982, we actually gave them some reparation, 20 million pounds, mm. which actually wasn't a great deal of money because I think it worked out at only about two and a half thousand pounds per person. But right. we have made overtures to try and correct it. But a lot of our colonial past was because the, you know, the, the way things were in those days, and you know, they they, they were pretty brutal. Yes, I mean, there were some pretty brutal acts carried out by all sorts of people uh, in Africa at that particular time. It wasn't just um, the British Empire, there were the French uh, who were involved in it, the Dutch were involved in it in some cases. Also, there were other African nations themselves, uh, which did some pretty terrible things to their own people. 
Oh, absolutely, they did. And, uh, you know, and what they use, they use local guards to to guard these these prisoners. And, you know, and the local guards really tortured them and, and did some terrible things to them. So there's a lot of bad feeling. But as uh, uh, the king said, and as uh, the, the president said, you know, we have to move forward. And, you know, they, they forge our relationship together going forward and not keep looking back on the past but we are sorry about the past but we now have to look forward rather than back right and do you think this will kind of put a lid on it then if you like if, if that's the right phrase i mean is it going I to be something know that, that there will that... ever go on sorry mike i think i think i don't think there'll ever be a lid on it but i think basically people today don't even rem you know many people don't remember what the Myanmar uprising was about i mean right. I, it was it's it's a difficult one. So they say, oh, the Mao Mao and the colonialists, and they they treated these people very badly. But it's already faded in the, in the, in the memory of, of many many people. Or I mean, it's certainly not taught about. I don't think in schools no. anymore. No, but there is also this social justice movement now, isn't there? Particularly in, in parts of Western Europe and, and the United States, where you know everything that happened in the past was bad, and we have to apologise for it, and it's all our fault. Um, and the British Empire was a ghastly, uh, terrible, terrible thing. And there's never any conversation about some of the good things that may have come from it. No, I think I think the late Queen was very conscious about you know the failings of the of the empire which went before her. So when the Commonwealth was formed, she was absolutely determined that it was really going to work for for the people that had been oppressed by the empire. And you know Philip used to call it uh, her baby. The Commonwealth really was something she was so keen to unite and. You know, because uh, Charles knows how much it meant to his mother, it means a great deal to him. And he's also very keen to keep things going smoothly and do as much as he can. And I think that one of the main roles of the Commonwealth now is climate change. And we're all united with that. I think this morning that Charles was at the United Nations and the conference. And so... I think the, the more we are united with the Commonwealth, the more help we are going to get as far as climate change is concerned. Yes. So that is a positive. And also for members of the Commonwealth, that you know, if they have a, a parent or a grandparent that, that lived in the UK, they're entitled to come here. They can get jobs. They can go to the military. I mean, it doesn't sound very exciting no. to you or I, Mike, but, but I mean, it, it, it means quite a lot to them, I think. Well, I think if they could get their heads around, um, you know, Commonwealth people and Commonwealth citizens getting access to come and live and work in this country ahead of people who are coming here illegally, I think that might be a, a thing. But I'm sure you don't want to argue uh, backwards and forwards about that. Uh, let's talk about The Crown, because um, I've always believed The Crown, uh, the Netflix series, to be um, a bit of a sort of a Mickey take, really, of reality. They're now proving themselves to be completely... Gaga do lally um, by setting up this um, ridiculous episode in which Princess Diana appears as a ghost. We're now hearing that um, she's going to be appearing not only as a ghost but as pregnant ghost. Um, uh, with Mohammed Al Fayed apparently claiming in it uh, that she and Dodi were killed as part of an establishment plot. Um, it's all getting a bit daft, isn't it? Well, Peter Morgan, the writer, he he he's never said it was a documentary. So probably, in a way, the wilder it is the better it is, because you think, well, this can't possibly be true. But, I mean, Mohammed Al-Fayyad did say that, that Dodi and Diana were killed. He did say that, and for a long, long time, many people believed in the conspiracy theories 
And it wasn't until we actually had the final inquest and, it, and the report was that Diana was uh, and Dodie were killed by a drunken driver. Mm. Is that people, you know, started to calm down about it. But there's still many, many, many people in the world that still believe mm. that there was a conspiracy theory. Well, there are, but there are many people who still believe that uh, nobody walked on the moon uh, and that, in fact, 9-11 was an inside job. But it doesn't mean you can put it into something which has up until now been relatively close to mostly the truth about the royal family. And it kind of started off as a bit of a docudrama, but now it's kind of realm, it's ratcheting off into kind of, you know, soap opera type stuff. But then don't you think that's a good thing, Mike, that it's gone into the realms of soap opera? Because... Uh, that people can't believe. I mean, at the beginning, people believed everything they saw right. and everything that was said. And I think, in a way, that the early episodes of The Crown actually helped the monarchy because they people then understood that actually the Queen didn't lie around doing yeah. nothing all day, that right. it was a very tough job. Um, this is, you know, globally, I've talked to lots of people and say we didn't know anything about mm. the monarchy until we watched The right. Crown. But now that it's going into the realms of fantasy, maybe people will think, well, actually, this can't possibly be well, you've, true. You've got, obviously let... a much, you've got a much higher opinion of the television audience than, than, than I have of The Crown, because I think the problem is is that because they've seen uh, what they believe to be real events being reenacted, they will think possibly that these are also real events being reenacted, um, albeit after the fact. Well, I think I think often when you see document documentaries on or doc, docu, doco dramas or whatever mm. they call them or reenactments of something, you are inclined to believe it. But then your sense says, well, you know, this this is you know this is not the actual fact. And um, there's been a lot. There was a lot of fuss during the last series of The Crown that they should have an announcement at the top saying that you know this is not factual. This is imaginary. Yes. And maybe they'll do that again. But I think they they have made it. Uh, very fantastical, if there is such a word. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV, the home of common sense. Uh, it's been a hell of a stressful week in Westminster amidst the COVID inquiry and the upcoming autumn statement. And if things couldn't get any worse now, uh, Tory party interns have been asked uh, to complete privileged walks to highlight the career advantages of being white and middle class. For heaven's sake, whatever else is going to go on. Here to discuss this and everything else uh, from the wacky world of Westminster is parliamentary sketchwriter, Mr Quentin Let's Good morning, Quentin. Oh, Senator Graham, there you are. There indeed it is. What a pleasure to see you. Um, I, I think a, a, an absolute tour de force this morning, I think, in the uh, Westminster sketch department where you refer to his nibs, the one and only Mr Dominic Cummings, um, as an incredibly complicated character, um, a sort of uh, uh, a, a man who may be suffering from mad horse disease, which I think is rather good, um, an incredible sort of suggestion that uh, he's a sort of Cassandra of his own making. I mean, it was quite great theatre, wasn't it? It was extraordinary theatre. He must be a very difficult colleague, I must say. Uh, you would all be wondering what was he doing when he was tapping into his telephone? What was he saying about one? Um, <laughs> And uh, at one point, you could see the scripts of these uh, messages that he was sending, and he was chatting so so ferociously fast, that he misspelt the present participle of the F word. Yeah, so, you know, his fingers were just flying with bile and and, uh, and vinegar. And uh, my goodness, what a piece of work Old Cummings is! Quite effective in some ways, in that he certainly shook up the blob. The trouble is, he's just so incontinent with his hatred yes. um, and contempt for everybody else that he rather lost sight of, uh, of his duty yeah. as, a, as, a, as a political servant. 
Well, there can be no better kind of um, message uh, or visionary kind of explanation of how mad everything was than that great uh, piece of footage of him running out of Downing Street, clutching uh, as many belongings as he could that so he could get his hands on, and then heading off straight to Barnard Castle, where he presumably he thought he could escape COVID. Yeah, I mean, um, he, he was certainly... Uh, you, you, when, when he went to Downing Street in those days, uh, as I occasionally did, I mean, spec writers are never sort of frontline operatives, but occasionally go there for press conferences or whatever. Cummings would be there lurking in the background, very untidy, uh, always sort of ostentatiously untidy, actually, yes. trying to make a point that he was not part of the setup. He was there as a sort of um, Rasputin figure. Yeah. Uh, perhaps that's a little bit libelous, I don't know, but certainly there was something <laughs> of, uh, of Rasputin's otherness. Yes. Uh, Dom, he was certainly obviously not part of the blob. But the trouble was with, with uh, he, he rather wanted to control the prime minister. He mm. thought that he was he was better than Boris and that he thought that Boris should do everything that he said. And then he became very angry, he and Lee Kane, his, his um, lurking henchman, sidekick, um, very, very cross when, when the prime minister didn't do everything that they said. And personally, uh, I was always rather sceptical of lockdown and I wish that Boris had resisted them a bit more, but I yeah. mean, I felt he, I think he was completely outnumbered by Cummings and, and Kane, and also by the rest of the civil service who are mm. all desperately to desperate to do lockdown. Great yeah. pity in my view. And also kind of disingenuous of, of Mr Cummings, is it not, to kind of create the creature Boris Johnson became in Downing Street and then to say uh, he was absolutely useless at what he was doing, despite the fact that he put him there, that he told him what to do, um, and he then decried the fact that he wasn't doing it. I wouldn't give him too much credit, you know. I wouldn't say that he created Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson created himself, or his parents did. Uh, and uh, this idea that Cummings was the great puppet master, I think he's playing into what he's trying to depict himself as, which yeah. is the great Svengali. Mm. I'm not sure he was that. I think he was one of several um, uh, advisors. And towards the end of that four-hour session yesterday, Cummings, Mr Cummings did admit he had some sympathy for Boris Johnson because there were various people going into the Prime Minister's study mm. saying completely different things the whole time, and that mm. is the nature of advice, and it's yeah. the Prime Minister's duty in the end to decide between those those contradicting, uh, those contrasting bits of evidence you get. So, um, I mean, Cummings wasn't wasn't quite as powerful as he thought he was, and no, this was one of the things. It's one of the reasons he became he became so very itchy. Yes. No, I think that's probably right. I didn't th I didn't really mean that he created Boris Johnson, but he sort of created yes. this figure of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister which was clearly a job that he was never really cut out to do. I mean, all of his other things that he had done, Mayor of London, he did pretty well. You know, campaigning to win an election, he did pretty well. Speaking at Tory party conference, very good. You know, engaging personality, very good. But it was kind of making him Prime Minister, I suppose, was the bit I was talking about. But, but Cummings is an odd character. I remember once uh, in the depths of all of it, um, when we were all sort of sitting around and I was going to work but spending very much most of my time sitting on the sofa trying to figure out what to watch to keep myself occupied, suddenly got a, a, a direct message from Dominic Cummings, um, who used to have this rather odd Twitter account, asking for my phone number um, and my email address. And, um, and, and so I, I proffered him my, my email address. I didn't fancy talking to him on the phone. And um, I never heard from him. And I thought to myself, this is a guy who clearly wants to have an, inf an impact on people. He wants journalists to think, oh, God, Dominic Cummings wants to get a hold of me. How exciting. And then he never did anything. Oh, well, he never troubled me. Perhaps that's too minor. <laughs> Didn't have all the, the influence of Mike Graham. I don't know. I mean, he did try to create this aura about himself. Yes. And we still saw some of that yesterday. I mean, there was really no need for him to be quite so crumpled 
and untidy as he was yesterday. Right. It somehow adds to the character, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, no wristwatch. No wristwatch, I noted. I, I, I thought that was a good odd. No, see, that's a good detail. I didn't, I didn't spot that. Let's have an actual look at what he said and how he said it. It was a mix of a lot of the wrong people in the wrong job, uh, um, decades of accumulated power, no real scrutiny and insight, a culture of um, constantly classifying everything to uh, hide mistakes and um, hide scrutiny. Uh, management was bad, incredibly bloated with uh, so many senior figures that, that, that they themselves, as Helen McNamara's statement makes clear, the senior people themselves didn't know who, who on earth was in charge of what. Yes, I mean, he paints He's a picture of, of a, a sort of useless organisation run uselessly by him. Yeah, well, no, not, not necessarily run, run by... Well, not, not uh, created by him. No. Uh, but he, he was one of the... I mean, he, he never had um, the title of chief of staff, I don't think, so he was not actually officially in control. And was anyone in control? Is anyone in control of the block? Mm. Uh, no, and, and I think some of his accusations yesterday were worth listening to and uh, probably uh, carry quite a lot of weight about the, um, the, the, the inertia uh, of, of the Whitehall system, which drives a lot of people mad. Mm. And I think that, you know, it, it was, there was a, a good case there. But the trouble was, he, he himself is so abrasive, the character. You have to be abrasive to get things done up to a point. It reaches the point where you're so abrasive, even towards your friend, uh, that um, it just becomes unreasonable. And like the little boy who was always crying wolf, he was so rude about everybody that in the end it just became impossible and, and, and people just threw up their, yeah. their eyes and said, that's just Dominic being Dominic. Yes. And, you know, we've stopped listening to him because he's so apocalyptic. Yes. And in his kind of effort to tilt at the blob, he didn't really get anywhere because he left before anybody in the blob left. And we've still got civil servants, senior civil servants, incredibly powerful, so much so that we saw that some of them didn't want to invite Israel to the AI uh, Institute that uh, is all currently going on this week with Rishi Sunak and Elon Musk. So, you know, he failed yeah. miserably, but also only he could have taken himself off to Holy Island uh, for several days to prepare for, for this colossal interview that he was going to have. Well, of course he failed, because they're much better at it than him. <laughs> I mean, you don't get to be a permanent secretary at Whitehall uh, without being an incredible tortoise and moving very slowly through yes. your career uh, and never sticking your head out. Uh, I mean, that's, that's how you become a permanent secretary. Right. And Dominic Cummings would not have lasted five minutes as a no. junior civil servant. Yes, and the operative word, of course, being permanent, which he certainly wasn't. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was come and gone in a couple of years, but... You know, that's, that's, what, that's all done. To, the whole system is geared to, uh, to benefit Humphrey. And, uh, but as for Lindisfarne, I, I mean, I thought that was rather good detail. And it is something of the crazed Cenobite about. He's got, you can imagine him uh, sort of with a pair of uh, sandals and just a, a floating tunic uh, and a long straggling beard staring out of the window of some cell and Lindisfarne at the North Sea having deep thoughts yes. and i think that's possibly that's possibly uh, where his future lies he would be might well be he has the makings i think of, of a tremendous habit yes. but uh, probably no longer as a political advisor
Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're going to be talking about a great many things coming up in this hour. We want to hear from you as well. Of course, you know what to do. 0344 499 1000. We've been talking about XL bully dogs. Uh, we have been talking as well about Dominic Cummings and the COVID inquiry, of course. Uh, and on Tuesday, uh, the COVID inquiry heard evidence from two of Boris Johnson's key advisors at the heart of the height of the pandemic and at the heart of it as well. Dominic Cummings, former chief advisor to the then prime minister, he said uh, that a dysfunctional system led vulnerable groups to be appallingly neglected in March 2020, adding that senior people themselves didn't know who on earth was in charge of what. Have a listen to this. It was a mix of a lot of the wrong people in the wrong job, uh, um, decades of accumulated power, no real scrutiny and insight, a culture of um, constantly classifying everything to uh, hide mistakes and um, hide scrutiny. Uh, management was bad, incredibly bloated with uh, so many senior figures that, that, that they themselves, as Helen McNamara's statement makes clear, the senior people themselves didn't know who, who on earth was in charge of what. And that was the clean version, by the way, because for those of you who were listening to some of it yesterday, uh, it got a bit fruity at times. Um, not only useless was a word that he described many cabinet ministers, but uh, many words we could not repeat here uh, on the television. Uh, but let's talk now to Deputy Comment Editor at The Telegraph, Ms Annabel Denham. Annabel, very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon, Mike. Now, I mean, I think you and I probably could have surmised that things were not going as well as they should have been inside of Downing Street during that terrible period uh, of the COVID pandemic. But I don't think we quite realised how much vitriol perhaps was going around, um, uh, mostly emanating from Dominic Cummings, but from all of the kind of, you know, very macho kind of world in which they inhabited, where just, you know, hurling insults at people, swearing at people, talking about each other behind their backs. I mean, it was worse than, than schoolyard politics, wasn't it? It was pretty ghastly language and attitudes and behaviours that we saw uh, going right up to the top to Boris Johnson's most senior aide during the pandemic. Look, like you say, Mike, I wasn't especially surprised by anything that I heard this week at the COVID inquiry. I'm not sure that the government at any stage gave us the impression that the situation was under control. It was quite clear that there was dysfunction and that there was chaos um, and that the government machine simply was not functioning properly. Now, aside from the accusations of misogyny and the crass and inappropriate language that Dominic Cummings was clearly using, I do think that there was value in his appearance, the evidence that he gave to the inquiry yesterday in terms of creating perhaps a clearer picture of what the culture and the structures were in government, which allowed the behaviours that we saw and the behaviour patterns that we saw during the pandemic to perhaps go unchecked. Some insight why it was that impromptu WhatsApps were being used to make crucial decisions rather than more full processes that you would expect from the highest level of government's, uh, government during an emergency. But my concern with the COVID inquiry is and has always been that it will not un ultimately answer the most important question, which is whether lockdown was an appropriate measure for a 
pandemic for a disease with the fatality rate of the coronavirus. And it seems to me that Baroness Hallett and the lead council have already reached some kind of conclusion that lockdown was necessary, that we needed that blunt authoritarian tool. And it's really just a question of timings of how the decisions were made and perhaps why we didn't lock down soon enough, why we didn't lock down hard enough, why we didn't lock down for long enough. And that's very concerning because the next time the pandemic reaches our shores, which, by the way, will probably be before this inquiry has even been wound up. No. We're not going to have learned any of the really crucial lessons. But isn't that the problem, though? Because you never can really be definitive about whether it was a good idea or not, because the people who make the arguments have a completely different point of view to each other. And so those who say, oh, well, it obviously didn't work because of this, then the defence will be, oh, yeah, but that's because it didn't start soon enough, it wasn't for long enough, it wasn't hard enough, and therefore that's why it didn't work. And others will say, um, when it didn't work at all, uh, they'll say, yeah, well, how much worse would it have been if we hadn't done it? So there's, literally, there's no way to reach the destination, if you like, uh, to judge whether it was right or wrong. I mean, I happen to think it was wrong. Uh, Boris Johnson's getting uh, an awful lot of flack in some of the papers this morning for saying, uh, is, why are we stopping everything? Why are we shutting everything down in order to save a few lives of some older people who might well die anyway? Yes, I think that's right. I'm, I don't really agree with the criticisms actually that have been levelled against Boris Johnson. Undoubtedly, he was indecisive, but the idea that he changed his mind on a daily or even hourly basis as new information came in, I think that's to be welcomed. Mm. I would encourage our prime minister, our most senior ministers and civil servants to have a healthy scepticism when it comes to imposing very draconian restrictions and undermining basic democratic freedoms. And yet, you know, so that, that seems to be something which ought to be criticised. But when it comes to the inquiry, I, I fear, just looking at the evidence that I've seen thus far, that when lockdown itself is challenged, that doesn't lead to a proper discussion in the inquiry. That's just noted. Mm. And the next line of questioning begins. And I worry that we're not uh, perhaps interviewing economists. In fact, economists have been completely sidelined over the last few years, unable to really give input into what the costs and benefits of lockdown might be. I mean, the inquiry ought to be designed to present us with a clearer broader picture that brings in what we now know, which is, as I say, the economic impact, which has been absolutely devastating, the rampant inflation, the cost of living crisis, mm. the impact that it's had on young people, not just in terms of their education, but in terms of socialisation, the challenges that so many young people are now facing, the massive increase in eating disorders and mental health illnesses, the hangover from furlough and the impact that that's had on attitudes to work mm. and so on and so forth. We know a lot more now than we did in March 20. 2020. And I think that we should give the government a little bit of slack. Hindsight is always 2020. No wonder they were perhaps flapping around and that there was a sense of chaos back at the start of the pandemic. It was completely unprecedented. But we need to learn lessons now based on the information that we currently have, in addition to learning from international best practice and why it was that Sweden didn't lock down. And yet it, the impact of the coronavirus was no more severe, really, than it was here in the UK right. when you consider all of the factors.
which would suggest that the lockdown wasn't necessary, um, at least at that level, in any event. But also, the other problem, it seems to me, that we have here is that people were very willing to go along with the restrictions. You know, there were an awful lot of people who, much less like me, uh, were just willing to swallow what they were being told by the government. You know, we were questioning it an awful lot here when we were uh, doing shows uh, at Talk TV and Talk Radio. And we were asking questions and we were getting kind of castigated as if we were somehow doubters, as if we were somehow, you know, overly negative about what the government was doing. And it turns out we were right to be overly negative about what the government was doing because they didn't know what they were doing. That's right. And I think throughout the pandemic, we had the issue of the identifiable victim problem, which was that we knew how many people were contracting the virus. We knew how many people were in intensive care and indeed, unfortunately, how many people were dying from the virus. Yeah. But we were focusing solely on those individuals, on trying to prevent a single person from dying of coronavirus without considering the impact, the social impact, the economic impact, indeed, the health impact of consecutive lockdowns. Now, I happen to have been in favour of the first lockdown, given that our understanding of the virus and how it behaved at the time was very rudimentary. But the question ought to be asked over whether that lockdown went on for too long, why it was that schools opened on the continent, many countries on the continent, before they opened here. And Boris Johnson, as we now know from this week's testimonies and the evidence that has come out, was worried that he blinked too soon when it came to the second lockdown, that mm. circuit breaker. Was that really necessary? And as, it, as for the third lockdown, the longest lockdown, again, did that drag on for too long? Did we need to delay Freedom Day? Are we going to answer these questions with this inquiry or is it just going to be an opportunity for character assassinations of those people who are working at the top of government? Is it an opportunity for the drama and the profanities, but actually not just asking that most basic and most important question? Well, that's, I think, my point, I suppose, which I, which I should have made slightly better, but you've just made it for me, is that, you know, surely we should be a bit more sceptical in the future, so that if there is, you know, information coming out of government, if they are going back to having those dreadful daily press conferences, rather than having questions from the media which were laughably bad, uh, from the likes of Robert Peston uh, and from others, where they were just kind of trying to get bogged down into whether there was enough being done, whether more could be done. At no point did anybody actually ask the question if it, they weren't doing too much. That's right. And of course, there's questions to be asked, very important questions to be asked about what the role of the opposition was yeah. here. Because anytime I saw Labour MPs go out on the media or speak in Parliament on the issue of lockdown, it was always to ask why the government hadn't brought it in sooner right. or why it wasn't lasting for longer or whether the restriction could be tougher. And if you look at the devolved nations, certainly we mm. saw evidence of uh, you know alacrity with which they might pull the most authoritarian levers. And these sorts of things need to be scrutinised because, of course, they placed additional pressure on the government when really their role, well, certainly the role of the opposition, should have been to hold the government to mm. account. And that was that was sorely lacking. And to your point about our compliance, like you, Mike, I was very surprised that the, the British public was so willing to adhere to these rules. But as mm. the lockdown files showed earlier this year, fear was being weaponised. When you terrify people into their homes, it's not altogether surprising that they're going to stay there. Yeah, exactly right. So, I mean, you know, it's been a bit more interesting this week, I suppose, as, as a general principle, the COVID inquiry. But today, um, it's another senior official who's up. There's nothing much coming out of it. I mean, this is going to go on, as you say, for a very, very long time indeed. Um, and if anything, um, we really haven't learned much about what we didn't already suspect or know, have we? 
No, I don't think so. Like I said, some of what Dominic Cummings has said thus far, I have found useful. Um, I would like much closer scrutiny of the medical and scientific establishment and why they didn't step up and why they arrived at the consensus decisions that they did. And to the first phase of the coronavirus um, inquiry, which has already been wound up, you know, there's, there was a strong sense that we were fighting the last war, that we were prepared for an influenza pandemic, but not a coronavirus pandemic. And I want to ensure that we prevent making that decision again. So interested to know what the next steps there will be. But like I've said, I don't feel as though the impact on children, as though the impact on the economy, which is being felt now very painfully, is, is a significant enough contributing factor to this inquiry. And as you say, it's going to go on for years. It's going to cost hundreds of millions of pounds. Many other nations have already wound up their commissions looking into their pandemic responses. And there's a real concern that we're just simply not going to take anything forward that will be useful when another pandemic comes onto our shores. And my concern is that now that we've had a lockdown, subsequent lockdowns, that will be a lever that future politicians will grab for more enthusiastically than they did this time. Let's not forget, it wasn't until Italy imposed a lockdown that politicians and their advisors here believed it was possible in the UK. They had seen it happen in Wuhan. They had seen the Chinese response, viewed it as extremely authoritarian and assumed they wouldn't be able to impose it on the British public. Well, it turned out that they could. Yeah. And that mustn't mean that the next time we have another emergency, another crisis, they do so without having a more thorough rather than less thorough impact assessment and cost-benefit analysis. Yeah, exactly right. Um, let's turn to the middle classes. Um, people would say sometimes it's the middle classes that run the country. Um, Tory interns are being told to undergo privileged walks, according to a piece in your paper today, to show advantages of being white and middle class. Seems like a ridiculous idea, but I also note from your paper this morning uh, as well, Annabelle, that middle classes are now working the longest than any other cohort of society um, amid a surge of economic inactivity, um, working later into life, working later into retirement um, and sharing less average wealth than ever. That's right. So it's finding that wealthier people are able to retire earlier simply because they're, they can afford to, whereas the, those of lower incomes are retiring earlier, perhaps because of sickness, because they, for some reason or another, need to become economically inactive. And actually, it's the middle classes who are powering through um, and into retirement, into those older years in order to keep earning, obviously keep contributing to the UK economy, and that ought to be commended. But at the same time, we should bear in mind... Uh, research from Civitas earlier this year, which found that an increasing number of middle class people in the UK are actually net beneficiaries from the state. So the amount that they are receiving through benefits exceeds the amount that they're paying in taxes. And that's extremely problematic. I mean, look, Mike, we talked about this before, but fundamentally, the British economy is broken now. We have very high levels of uh, economic inactivity, high numbers of people who are on sickness benefit. We have an NHS who's unable to treat those people. Indeed, people within the NHS, staff within the NHS, unable to turn up for work because they themselves are ill. We have a highly regulated labour market, which is making it less and less uh, sort of uh, attractive for employers to take on workers. We've got taxes and the set to reach their highest level in seven decades, worsening public services. Um, things are simply getting worse 
and worse. And a concern that I have is that the, the, we've got this squeezed middle who are becoming less and less incentivized to work. So, you know, it's, it is reassuring to learn that they are they are working later in life, but we need to address why it is perhaps that those of lower income are unable to and ways in which we might be able to encourage wealthier members of the society to participate in the economy for longer, perhaps yeah. by loosening some of the rules around self-employment. Well, that would be nice. It would be very good to see. But I fear that there's not going to be much comfort coming next week in the uh, autumn statement. Do you think there's any good news coming there? Well, it's a really interesting one because over the last couple of weeks, we've seen Jeremy Hunt come under increasing pressure. There's a lot of speculation that he's going to be replaced, not after the autumn statement, perhaps not even after the budget in the spring. But after that, there's a sense that he is unable to inspire voters, that he's not going to be offering them anything that will get them to the ballot box and voting conservative. And there's now speculation that perhaps he's going to pull some kind of rabbit out of the hat at the autumn statement. Statement. Now, he's going to be very reluctant to uh, cut taxes, uh, personal taxes that he feels would be an inflationary move, but he may cut something like inheritance tax or stamp duty, both of which I would be supportive of. Inheritance tax, to me, is a terrible, immoral uh, tax. I find it ultimately grotesque that people who pay tax throughout their lives are then taxed in death, while stamp duty further distorts the housing market. We have a housing crisis crisis in this country. So both of those would be welcome. But whether the Chancellor feels that now is the time that he can slash taxes, I'm not so sure. I wonder if he might wait until the March budget. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now it is time for this. The world of work. Welcome to the world of woke. Now, you know how it used to be kind of trendy to be green. Everybody wanted to be green. Everybody wanted to get an electric car. Everybody wanted to get something that was sustainable. Now, um, of course, things might have taken a turn uh, for the worse because it turns out that an awful lot of people used to be asked the question, do you want to have ethical investing? Do you want to have sustainable funds when you invest your money, if you're lucky enough to have any? Uh, well, they were very fashionable a couple of years ago. But I'm afraid to tell you I've got some bad news for the green lot because nearly 2.5 billion quid has been pulled from woke environmental and social issues since May. This has all been revealed uh, in something called uh, the investment world, in which the investments uh, for something like the Clean Energy Index have been discovered to be sadly lacking in money because people have decided they've had enough of the green agenda. People have decided, of course, it's all very well being green, as long as it doesn't cost you any more money. But if you're investing your pension, or if you're investing uh, any other parts of uh, your income into what would be stocks and shares, what would be indexes around the world, um, you are now no longer saying, we want it to be green, we want it to be sustainable, we want it to be good, we want to virtue signal all the way to the bank. Well, now they don't care. Uh, and I say, that is a good thing. So the world of banking has become less woke, which is brilliant. And that is the world of woke. The world of woke. Now, moving on, a recent legal challenge aimed uh, at uh, stopping the enforcement of Glasgow's low 
emission zone has unfortunately been dismissed by the High Court, costing campaigns £130,000 on the grounds that the challenge to the scheme were not well founded. This only just happened this week. And of course, we've been talking about ULES and the expansion zone. We learned just the other day uh, that Sadiq Khan and Transport for London are raking in an incredible £715,000 per day uh, with the expanded ULES charges. £12.50, something like 57,000 people driving cars having, having to pay that money. They're not so lucky in Scotland because in Glasgow, you don't even get offered the chance to pay for you, Les, what you do is just get fined if you drive in to the wrong part of town. And here to tell me what has happened up there in Scotland and what they're going to do about it uh, is the incomparable Mr. Donald McLeod. Uh, good afternoon, Donald. Hi there. How are you? Yeah, not bad at all. Now, I heard from you late yesterday that uh, this judicial review that's been going on um, has been basically dismissed by, uh, by a judge. Tell us um, what you were trying to get um, and what's actually happened. Well, the judgment yesterday, I, I, as you know, I was hugely disappointed. And in fact, I, I think I swore more than Dominic Cummings <laughs> when the news came through, you know. Yeah. But it was a real kick in the teeth, uh, as William Payton, the main petitioner, said. Um, it comes in a day, of course, that £1 million in fines have been registered at the Glasgow City Council over the past five months on uh, unfortunate motorists yeah. that have... Uh, driven into Glasgow's uh, LEZ zones. The, the, the judgment they're saying Lady Poole said was not well founded. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know where they're getting that from mm. or where she's getting that from. If it wasn't well founded, why indeed did she allow the case to continue when we went back, you know, when we got the doors opened yeah. to, to fight the case by her uh, a couple of months back? If it's not well founded, then... Now, it wouldn't have been well-founded then. The arguments have still been the same. Um, what uh, When we first lodged the case, our arguments have been consistent. You can tell I'm pretty sick about all this. I'm yeah. absolutely spewing about it. Yeah. But, no, I know. There's no way. I mean, there's, there's just no air pollution right. uh, problems in Glasgow. It's, uh, the, the stats and data prove that. So how can it not be well-founded? Their arguments... They, Air pollution monitors are sneakily set up under bridges across, you know, um, beside bus stops, beside taxis. The fines are punitive and disproportionate, as we know. Yeah. There's no proper well-researched economic impacts assessments carried out prior to its implementations. The results of the public consultation were unsurprisingly ignored. Right. You know, a typical thing from the, you know, the, the SNP Green Alliance, and it disproportionately affects the poor, the um, those with lower incomes, and it drives people away. Footfalls never recovered uh, pre-pandemic, right. and yet here we are bringing in a low economy zone, as I've always called it. Uh, it's just not, there's no recovery in the city. And you know what gets me about this law and, and power? Why do they not offer, uh, you know, exemptions for right. a business like William Payton's? Who, who could lose right. his business here? You well, know, exactly. go under. And let's, let's just know, recap, I, let's just recap. Donald, because William Payton, not everybody will know, uh, is a business that's been in Glasgow for, for, for decades, right? Six, it's a, 60 years. It's a car repair business. People drive into town to get their cars fixed by this guy, but he is just inside the ULES zone by, what, 20 yards or something ridiculous. And so now <laughs> people jobs. and so now people are not going to, to give him their business because they don't want to pay a fine to take their car in there. And presumably also, if you did have your car in there and they had to keep moving it backwards and forwards and parking it somewhere, they'd probably have to pay the ULES every day, wouldn't they, the fine? 
Yeah, well, worse than that, it's four of it. He's lost four of his mechanics because mm. they have older vehicles. So they, you know, the mechanics are highly sought after. So they're just working outside the zone now. So you know, we things like that, and you start adding them up. Yeah, businesses go under. People, you just stop visiting the city, and that is a case. And I cannot believe that they, you know, they're allowed to use all false, old data, false data. Our, our data wasn't accepted. It was ruled out, and it really, you know, to me, it, it, it really, I'm so angry at the judiciary here. I, I don't think it sticks up for the the little guy. I don't think it supports us. You know, it's it's just. You know, and the council just highway robbery on, on a grand scale. It would make Dick Turpin blush the amount of money that, that, that they're scooping up here. I think it's terrible. I really do. I, my, as I say, my faith in the judiciary and the legal system is, well, you know, it's been shot to pieces here. Yeah. And I mean, have you got any option to take it further? What's the decision likely to be made on that? Well, you know, as you say, it's 130 grand just spent there. It's going to cost a lot more than that to get to go forward. So we'll need to sit down. The fight back team will need to sit down and see if, uh, you know, if it's a fight worth taking forward. And we begin to think, you know, that the judiciary and the, and the government are, are in cahoots here. Um, and so, you know, it's a big, big decision for a, a, a law lord to make, um, especially if it goes against what the government policy is. And so far today, I don't see many of these decisions going against government, whether it's down south or whether it's up here. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a huge consideration right. to be taken on board, if not indeed a great expense. Yeah. Well, this, is, just what so we, this is what we were told. You know, we discovered yesterday that, uh, that TfL Transport for London is raking in £715,000 a day because 57,000 car drivers are paying the £12.50 to drive in the expanded zone. The Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, told people this wasn't going to affect very many drivers. It wasn't going to affect very many cars. <laughs> 57,000 a day. It's unreal. Oh, and he said it wasn't about the money, it was about cleaning the air. <laughs> well, they're just taking the money and running to the bank with it. What they like? I mean, the movies just keep growing, don't they? Yeah. I mean, straight out there. I mean, honest to God, this is about money. This is about uh, you know, raising revenue. This is not about air pollution. This is not about improving people's health. You know, I, I, it's the the bedwetters out there, the virtuous virtue signalers are all saying, "Oh yeah, oh the asthma de deaths to asthma." There's not one case been absolutely written down. Even the national records of Scotland, there's nothing to suggest that asthma is a big problem or a, or a major killer. And so, you know, I, I, I don't believe a word of it. I am, I, I just think they use this as a, 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 as a way of raising revenue. Yeah. But, you know, as you can tell, I am fizzing, I'm sick. I'm, I, why are we always fighting, Mike? Why do mm. we always have to fight these people. Yeah. Why can't they just sit down and, you know, we come to a compromise? Yeah. There should be. Uh, if they want an, an LEZ zone, make it in the streets that are actually polluting, right. not the whole area. Make right. it so that so that people put an integrated transport system in place first, mm. which Glasgow certainly hasn't got, you know, yeah. it's miles from that, you know, decades away from that. So yeah, they're, they're doing things you know, backwards, you know, frontwards. You know, I was going to say something else there, but, you know... <laughs> no, exactly right. Language. But also, is it not right that we... I'm sure we saw some figures that suggested that actually comparing 
the, um, the pollution levels after this ULED zone was created, uh, they've actually yeah. gone up. <laughs> so they're worse now than they were last year when, when there was no well, ULED zone. Well, there was that, but, you know, that, that sort of maybe goes against their argument, but it, the, but it only went up in one area, and mm. that is Hope Street, Glasgow, which has always been, uh, you know, high in pollution, but it did still didn't go against, uh, go above the uh, recommended WHO settings. Right. And it was still in the green. But remember, Hope Street is right beside Central Station. Yeah. You know, all the diesel fumes that are spewing out of there, then they put the sensors, they put the actual uh, monitors beside the taxi rank and bus stop. Yeah. You know, and then say, oh, pollution's went up. Oh, come on. Mm. I, I mean, honesty in government, I just, it's just not happening these days, is it? No. I mean, it's like, well, good luck away trying to it. get your hands on any of the WhatsApp messages they've been exchanging because they seem to keep deleting <laughs> those faster than you can say. You know, Jack McConnell. But there you are. Listen, Donald, good to see you. I'm sorry to say it's under these circumstances. We'll see what we can do uh, to get some kind of fight back on the go. Um, and just have to keep your chin up in the meantime. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.